Is it time for a mind shift? If you don't know what that means, then join your host, Dr. Clint Haycock, a former evangelical Christian pastor and Bible college teacher of over 20 years, along the journey of deconstruction and reconstruction of faith, life, religion, and spirituality. Who exactly was Jerry Lehman Falwell Sr., and what was his impact on the formation of what we now know today as the Christian right? In this episode, which is part of my new series I'm doing in 2021 called Profiles of the Christian Right, it's a bit of a follow-up to the most recent episode that I did with Frank Schaefer on some of the origins of the Christian right. As you'll know, Frank and his famous dad, Francis Schaefer, were there for most of it, as they were pushing evangelicals and evangelical leaders all across America to get involved in the anti-abortion crusade with their film series, Whatever Happened to the Human Race. Frank met Jerry Falwell on several occasions and even preached to this church. So he was there when so much of this all went down. So just to warn you, this is going to be a long episode. We're approaching Dan Carlin hardcore history levels here. I've been doing a ton of research on this subject, so there's a lot of information to process. In fact, I could have added more, but at some point you just have to stop or it'll basically become an audio book. So we'll take a couple of breaks along the way, but strap yourself in, pour yourself a beer, go make a nice hot drink or whatever you have to do because we are going to go in depth on this subject, the story of Jerry Falwell Sr. and his involvement in helping to form the Christian right. So, to return to the original question, who was Jerry Falwell Sr., and why is his story even important to examine? Most likely, at the very least, you'll probably be familiar with his name. If you don't know who he was, then you may only know of him because of his son, Jerry Falwell Jr., who, until recently, was the president of Liberty University. Jr., of course, is best known for being a rabid, early adopting Trump supporter and highly controversial figure in his own right. Whereas his father managed to remain basically scandal-free, his son wasn't so fortunate. He, of course, is well known for his own antics. In fact, amidst enveloping scandals, he was finally fired in 2020 from his role as president of Liberty University, the school that his father founded in 1971. By the way, let me just point out, if you're looking to do a very deep dive into this entire time period, probably the best resource would be the book by Flo Conway and Jim Siegelman, who have been guests on the podcast a few times. It's called Holy Terror, The Fundamentalist War on America's Freedoms in Religion, Politics, and Our Private Lives. That book came out in 1982 off the back of Conway and Siegelman's groundbreaking research. They had been looking at the origins of the Christian right in the late 1970s and early 80s, along with cult psychology. By the way, we're in chats now about doing a podcast episode soon about their role in shedding a much-needed light on this critical time period, and we'll trace it right on through, as I'm going to do in this episode, from guys like Falwell all the way through to the evangelical Trump support. In their book, Holy Terror, they had this to say about Falwell and his growing notoriety at the time, just a couple years after the founding of the Moral Majority. They say, quote, Everybody's heard of Reverend Jerry Falwell. Since early 1980, he and the national media have been carrying on a torrid affair. 
pastor of the Thomas Road Baptist Church in Lynchburg, Virginia, star of the Old Time Gospel Hour on television, and founder and president of Moral Majority, Inc., the fundamentalist right lobby that has sought to influence legislation and elections at state, local, and national levels, Falwell has become synonymous with the new right and the Preachers into Politics movement. On every divisive issue that pops up, from abortion to school prayer to sex and violence on television, Falwell's name and face are there. In Congress and the administration, he has become a roving representative at large, self-appointed leader of the nation's born-again Christians, consulted by everyone from lawmakers to the president to foreign heads of state on everything from Supreme Court nominations to international arms sales, end quote. Heady stuff indeed, just a few years after the moral majority was founded. But what else is Jerry Falwell known for? Among other things, Falwell Sr. was also famous, or maybe I should say infamous, for the following career highlights in his never-ending crusade as a fundamentalist culture warrior. He first made a name for himself as the fundamentalist firebrand preacher of the Thomas Road Baptist Church in Lynchburg, Virginia. He later became the star of the nationwide old-time gospel hour, radio, and then TV show. He was instrumental in founding the Moral Majority in 1979. He was also well-known for filing a defamation lawsuit against Larry Flint, the publisher of the pornography magazine Hustler, in 1984. In addition to his near-lifelong crusade against the evils of pornography, he was also well-known for his many homophobic statements throughout his long career. According to an article in The Nation, written shortly after Falwell's death, journalist Max Blumenthal recounts the following story. Quote, In 1984, Falwell called the gay-friendly Metropolitan Community Church a vile and satanic system that will one day be utterly annihilated and there will be a celebration in heaven. Members of these churches, Falwell added, are brute beasts. Falwell initially denied his statements, offering Jerry Sloan, an MCC minister and gay rights activist, $5,000 to prove that he had made them. When Sloan produced a videotape containing footage of Falwell's denunciations, the Reverend refused to pay. Only after Sloan sued did Falwell cough up the money, end quote. Moving on. In 1987, he took over the PTL, the Praise the Lord Network, replacing the disgraced, scandal-ridden Jim Baker. In 1999, he outed Tinky Winky of the Teletubbies as allegedly being gay. What he actually said was that Tinky Winky modeled the gay lifestyle because although he was apparently a boy, he carried a purse and had a triangle on his head, the symbol of gay pride. And finally, he's also known for the horrific statements he made after 9-11, appearing alongside fellow TV preacher Pat Robertson on The 700 Club about who exactly was to blame for the terrorist attacks on the World Trade Center. This is the first time that we've been attacked on our soil. First time, and by far, the worst results. And I fear, as Donald Rumsfeld, the Secretary of Defense, said yesterday, that this is only the beginning, and with biological warfare available to these monsters, the Husseins, the Bin Ladens, the, uh, the, the Arafats, uh, what we saw on Tuesday, as terrible as it is, could be minuscule if, in fact, if, in fact, God continues to lift the curtain and allow the enemies of America to give us probably what we deserve. 
Well, that's my feeling. I think we've just seen the, the antechamber to terror. We haven't even begun to see what they can do to the major population. I mean, the, ACLU, uh, the ACLU's got to take a lot of blame for this. Oh, yes. And I know I'll hear from them for this, but uh, throwing God or successfully with the help of the federal court system, throwing God out of the public square, out of the schools. Uh, the abortionists have got to bear some burden for this because uh, God will not be mocked and when we destroy 40 million little innocent babies, we make God mad. I, I really believe that the pagans and the abortionists and the feminists and the gays and the lesbians who are actively trying to make that an alternative lifestyle, the ACLU, People for the American Way, all of them who tried to secularize America, I point the finger in their face and say, you helped this happen. Well, I, I totally concur. And of course, if you remember that story that kind of went viral, Jerry Falwell did hear from them, and he was forced to issue a kind of an apology to the gays and the lesbians a couple of days later. He said, I didn't mean to say it that way, but I think he absolutely did. It's all about his Christian nationalism, which we'll talk about in a minute. Although there's already been a lot written about Falwell Sr. already, what I want to focus on in this episode of this series, Profiles of the Christian Right, is that fascinating period, basically from the mid-1970s to the end of the 1980s, which saw a transition from the previous isolation of the Christian fundamentalists to the evangelical involvement in American politics. In her excellent 2018 investigation of Jerry Falwell Sr., appropriately titled The Book of Jerry Falwell, Dr. Susan Friend Harding comments on this period, when she says, quote, A cultural movement swept through many American fundamentalist communities during the 1980s. Under the leadership of Reverend Jerry Falwell and allied preachers, millions of inerrant Bible believers broke old taboos constraining their interactions with outsiders, claimed new cultural territory, and refashioned themselves in church services, Bible studies, books and pamphlets, daily life, and the public arena. She says, in the process, they altered what it meant to be a fundamentalist and reconfigured the larger fellowship of born-again Christians, the rules of national public discourse, and the meaning of modernity, end quote. During that era, the formerly separate and angrily militant fundamentalists rebranded themselves as the much more palatable-sounding, Bible-believing conservative evangelicals. Whereas before, they had avoided the evil influences of the world, Suddenly now, they were hard at work effectively Christianizing a lot of previously worldly or secular things, including sports, therapy, sex manuals, glossy magazines, Disney-like special effects, television, and radio, and specifically for our purposes here, politics too. In terms of the larger historical context behind this question about how and why leaders like Jerry Falwell Sr., were able to transition fundamentalists into the world of politics, which we'll get into in a bit, the larger question we need to examine first is this. To what extent was this move influenced by the teachings of dominion theology? It's important to note that this is not a teaching that's limited to what's going on in American evangelicalism. Dominionists have plans to rule the whole world, and they've been working hard for decades to accomplish that end. If you want to understand how far back this movement goes, Back to the mid-early 1930s, mid-1940s, check out the series The Family on Netflix, which is, of course, from a book written by the same name by Jeff Charlotte. Sarah Posner commented in a 2011 Salon article 
that Dominion theology is one of the major drivers behind the Christian right itself. She comments, quote, The idea that Christians have a sacred duty to get involved in politics, the law and media, and otherwise bring their influence to bear in different public spheres is the animating principle behind the religious right. If you attend a Values Voters Summit, the annual Washington Confab hosted by the Family Research Council, you'll hear speakers urging young people to go into media or view Hollywood as a mission field. She says that's because they insist these institutions have been taken over by secularists who are causing the downfall of America with their anti-Christian beliefs, end quote. Consider, for example, some of the following statements made by evangelical leaders over the years. In an excellent 2006 article on the subject by Dr. John Whitehead entitled The Rise of Dominionism and the Christian Right, he cites from hugely influential evangelical leader and TV preacher and, I guess, prophet, Pat Robertson, who made the following statement, quote, God's plan is for his people, ladies and gentlemen, to take dominion. What is dominion? Well, dominion is lordship. He wants his people to reign and rule with him, but he's waiting for us to extend his dominion. And the Lord says, I'm going to let you redeem society. There will be a reformation. We're not going to stand for these coercive utopians in the Supreme Court and in Washington ruling over us anymore. We're not going to stand for it. We're going to say, we want freedom in this country and we want power, end quote. Given the recent events of what happened at the Capitol riots in Washington, D.C. on January 6, 2021, Robertson's words from years ago are chillingly prescient and accurate, given what so many of the so-called patriots who took part in it were chanting about taking back our country and that the Capitol was our house. That the riots were fueled in large part by conspiracy theories and Christian nationalism is something that I've talked about a lot in some of my recent episodes on the cult of QAnon or in my monthly chats with Peter Montgomery of the Right Wing Watch on my YouTube channel. You can subscribe if you want more information on that. There's also an excellent video on the Religious News Association Facebook page featuring a panel discussion on Christian nationalism from 2019. And that panel conversation, by the way, features two former guests that I've had on the podcast, Catherine Stewart and Andrew Seidel. But returning to the subject of evangelicals being motivated to get involved in politics by the teachings of Dominion theology, let's also note what megachurch pastor of the Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church, the late Dr. D. James Kennedy, also stated. He said, quote, Our job, that is Christians, is to reclaim America for Christ, whatever the cost. As the vice regents of God, we are to exercise godly dominion and influence over our neighborhoods, our schools, our government, our literature and arts, our sports arenas, our entertainment media, our news media, our scientific endeavors, in short, over every aspect and institution of human society." End quote. If you know anything about what Kennedy is saying here, this sounds awfully familiar. He is articulating the core thesis of one stream or iteration of Dominion theology, which is known as the Seven Mountains Mandate. According to this view, Christians are to occupy the seven cultural mountains of society and ultimately rule and reign by engaging in spiritual warfare, among other things. Essentially, the core thesis or argument of Dominion theology is as follows. Dominion theology believes that the Bible, and therefore God himself, have mandated that Christians should be ruling the world by divine decree. 
This is the meaning of what people like Robertson and Kennedy are saying, that Christians should take dominion over the world. And as I mentioned, although the movement has several different iterations or streams, at its core, all Dominion theology proponents agree on that basic premise about Christians ruling the world, while they absolutely have their areas of bitter theological disagreement. I mean, after all, what would Christianity be without doctrinal disputes among fellow believers? In the main, they all believe that it is God's mandate or God's will for Christians ultimately to be in charge and ruling over the world. Exactly how that is meant to happen is some of what defines the differences between those various streams. But what we're seeing currently is an increasing usage or crossover of keywords, loaded language, and critical talking points being used interchangeably among those various iterations of Dominion theology. And we also need to remember that closely allied with that idea of Christians taking Dominion, at least for a great many American evangelicals and Dominionists anyway, is the notion of Christian nationalism. Without getting too much into the weeds here, many of them truly believe that America itself was started by the founding fathers as an expressly Christian nation. It was to be a shining city on the hill. This belief has been around a very long time and can be traced as far back as the Puritans who saw themselves as the new Israel as they left Europe heading to the promised land of America. Their vision, as I mentioned, was for the nation to be a shining city on a hill from which the gospel would be broadcast to the rest of the world. If you know where to look, prominent individuals have stated their beliefs in Christian nationalism too. For example, when he was running for president, just as one example, Woodrow Wilson said in 1913 that, quote, America was born a Christian nation. America was born to exemplify that devotion to the tenets of righteousness which are derived from the revelations of Holy Scripture, end quote. In addition to believing that America was originally founded as a Christian nation and that it should become one again, Christian nationalists believe that the separation of church and state that the founding fathers allegedly intended is nothing but a myth. At best, they view it as a one-way wall. In other words, the government shouldn't be allowed to overreach and meddle in the affairs of the church. However, the church should absolutely be involved in the political sector as a moralizing force for good, to counter the forces of secularism, and to turn the nation back to God, among other things. In the view of Christian nationalists, over the centuries, though, America has lost its way morally. Well, how did this happen exactly? I thought America was the new Israel, the shining city on a hill that was founded by godly men with the express aim of spreading the gospel to all the world. Well, they argue that this slide happened because the nation embraced the terrible and anti-God philosophy of secular humanism and became more pluralistic and diverse. As a result, they argue, America has abandoned its covenant with God that the Founding Fathers instituted. As proof of this nationwide slide into immorality, they point to such corporate sins as the stripping of prayer and Bible reading from public schools, the legalization of abortion, the toleration of homosexuality and same-sex marriage, widespread crime and lawlessness, pornography and sexual immorality, abuses of alcohol and alcoholism, rampant drug abuse, gangs, and other terrible transgressions of God's laws. All of these and more have resulted in God judging America. And every time there's a natural disaster, they see the hand of God involved as he tries to get America's attention so that the nation will repent. 
Things like floods, hurricanes, California wildfires, drought, all these are the work of God, just like he punished Old Testament Israel for violations of the law and the covenant they had with him. Some would even point to the coronavirus pandemic as the ultimate judgment of God against America. Strangely enough, though, they don't seem to have an answer as to why the rest of the world is getting punished, too. Most other countries don't consider themselves to be Christian nations. But as we've already heard in that clip of Falwell Sr. and Pat Robertson after 9-11, Christian nationalists are always looking for somebody to be able to point the finger in their face and say they bear the blame for this judgment of God on the nation. But don't think that it's all doom and gloom. There's a silver lining to all this potential divine judgment. Someday, hopefully, America might return to being a Christian nation again and experiencing the blessings of God. But how? From the point of view of Christian nationalists, one way for America to regain its lost status as a Christian nation seems fairly straightforward. Christians should just take over. As D. James Kennedy stated, Taking dominion means that Christians should be in charge of every aspect and institution of human society. According to historian Dr. Randall Balmer, in an article in Politico about the true origins of the religious right, one of the architects, along with Jerry Falwell Sr., of the moral majority was a certain Catholic activist named Paul Weirich. We'll hear more about him later on. But note what he said as far back as the mid-1970s and what he said in reference to his activism efforts to create a massive voting bloc of evangelicals, Catholics, Mormons, and Orthodox Jews. Thus, decades ago, Weirich confidently predicted that, quote, when political power is achieved, the moral majority will have the opportunity to recreate this great nation. Weirich believed that the political possibilities of such a coalition were unlimited. The leadership, moral philosophy, and workable vehicles are at hand, just waiting to be blended and activated, he wrote. If the moral majority acts, results could well exceed our wildest dreams, end quote. And there you have it. Christian nationalism all blends together, doesn't it? Turns out that, as I mentioned, it was actually Weirich's term that he coined, the moral majority, that became the title of Falwell's organization that he, along with Weirich and several others, helped to found in 1979, which we'll get more into in a bit. In America, therefore, the concepts of dominion theology are what undergirds a great deal of the religious right, that is, the historic evangelical and Catholic involvement in politics. And even though a great many in the movement may have never heard of names like R.J. Rushdoony or of the movement that he founded, Christian Reconstructionism, Dominion theology nonetheless forms much of the philosophy or bedrock foundation of the whole issue of why Christians should even be involved in politics at all. Another major figure from that era, Francis Schaeffer, didn't entirely agree with Rushdoony and his Dominionist ideas, but nonetheless, his stance against abortion in the 70s and 80s did spur a huge number of evangelicals to get involved in the political sector and social activism. And of course, Frank Schaefer and I talked about this a lot in the episode we did toward the end of 2020, if you want more information on that. But what a lot of people don't understand is how hugely influential R.J. Rushdoony's work was on forming the foundation of what would become the Christian right. With his 1973 book, The Institutes of Biblical Law, which more than any other of his works provided the basis of what would become Christian Reconstructionism, that book exhorted Christians to take over the world through political means. 
As Whitehead points out, quote, Rushduni's writings transformed the way Christians thought about political involvement and essentially laid the foundation for the emergence of a powerful political right wing. As Rushduni's son-in-law, Gary North, notes, his writings are the source of many of the core ideas of the new Christian right, a voting bloc whose unforeseen arrival in American politics in 1980 caught the media by storm, end quote. And I'll just interject right here that if you want to learn more about Christian Reconstructionism and R.J. Rushduni, you can look up some of the past episodes I've done on him last year with experts like Dr. Julie Ingersoll, Dr. Andre Gagne, and Dr. Michael McVicker. But the very notion that evangelicals would get involved in politics at all in the first place seems awfully strange, however, if you stop and think about it. And in this episode, I want to focus more specifically on the role that Jerry Falwell Sr. played in motivating an entire generation of Christians to get involved, not only in the public sector generally in terms of winning a culture war, but more specifically in American politics. The irony of this whole discussion is this. Roughly a century ago, most fundamentalist pastors and church leaders advocated that Christians should come out from and be separate from the evil influences of the secular world. And that includes, of course, the dirty sphere of politics. But who exactly were the fundamentalists? Well, briefly, they arose as a reactionary movement stemming from the debates with the so-called modernists, the liberal Christians in the late 19th and up to about the mid-20th century. In their reaction against liberal Christianity, among other things, the fundamentalists rejected the liberal social gospel as well as what's called higher criticism. I'll expand a little bit more on this later on, but basically at that time there was a fundamentalist retreat both from religious institutions of higher education like Princeton Seminary and others as well as a retreat from being involved in any social issues at all. Instead they focused on getting their doctrinal beliefs correct and drawing lines in the sand to determine who was and who wasn't a true Christian. Liberals, as they embraced a more inclusive gospel that was open to questions about the Bible and its literary formation, as I mentioned, this is what's called higher criticism, uh, not only were they wrong about their ideas, said the fundamentalists, they most certainly were not saved. They weren't true believers at all. In fact, fundamentalist Dr. J. Gresham Machen once famously stated that the liberal social gospel was not only wrong, it was an entirely different gospel that was both false and heretical. By contrast, the fundamentalists painted themselves as both the saviors and defenders of true orthodox Christianity. I'll get into more detail about the fundamentalists in a minute here, but it's helpful at this point to think of dominion theology and the evangelical involvement in politics in this way. If you're a believer, once you buy into that basic premise that God has mandated in the Bible that Christians are destined to rule the world and establish some type of theocratic kingdom, well, then what better avenue to pursue than politics? Who else runs the world but politicians, presidents, prime ministers, dictators, and strongmen? And think about it. If they were to become Christians themselves, meaning that people at the very top of the political and social ladder or mountain of influence, they should be evangelized with the gospel, or at the very least, they should have close advisors who are Christians, then their policies would ultimately be influenced to turn their nations toward God. And that's why you have things like Trump's Evangelical Advisory Board. This is what they mean when they use language like, we're about transforming nations for Christ. But wait a minute, isn't Christianity supposed to be all about evangelism, sharing your faith and getting people saved? 
Where did all this talk about taking dominion come from? Decades ago, the main focus of global Christianity was all about missions and being missional. In other words, proselytizing the world for Christ through evangelism. This is also what they mean when they say words like being missional. In other words, every Christian, regardless of their location in the world or their position of influence, should be about witnessing and evangelism. Christians, they argue, should be seeking to win their unsaved friends, neighbors, co-workers, and relatives to Christ. Christian missionaries travel to other foreign nations. They live there full time in an effort to bring the gospel to unreached people groups. Speaking of which, let's take a little side look at a very interesting conference that took place back in 1974. The hugely famous evangelist Billy Graham, along with many other very influential Christian leaders at the time, like Francis Schaeffer and British theologian Reverend Dr. John Stott, they realized that to their shame, that due to the fundamentalist withdrawal from that secular world decades earlier, that Christianity was having less and less impact on the world. Christianity was on the back foot in terms of evangelism and global missions as they saw it at the time. Now billed as evangelicals, which is basically second or third generation fundamentalists who had softened their militant stance a bit, they realized that something needed to be done that quickly. And so it was that in 1974, Billy Graham was joined by over 2,400 other evangelical and Christian leaders from all over the world in the town of Lausanne, Switzerland. It was billed as the first International Congress on World Evangelism, and it was one of the largest, if not the largest, gatherings of Christian leaders that had ever been held. Over the period of 10 days, these influencers listened to papers being read, they prayed together, they had breakout sessions as they discussed this issue of what they, as Christian leaders, should do to change the situation. Out of the conference came the Lausanne Covenant, a document produced by a committee chaired by John Stott along with other international leaders. In addition to the covenant, which a great many churches, denominations, Bible colleges, and seminaries still adhere to today, by the way, other significant developments that came out of the conference were terms like unreached people groups that I mentioned a minute ago, or the 1040 window, which anyone who's had any history with or knowledge of the philosophy of ministry behind much of Christian missions, you'll instantly recognize those terms. Moreover, off the back of the Lausanne Covenant in 74 came other significant conferences that produced such important missional documents like the Manila Manifesto 15 years later, and then the Cape Town Commitment in 2010. I don't want to get too much into the Lausanne Covenant, but I'll read you the introductory paragraph just so you can get a sense of where these Christian leaders were coming from at the time. Keep in mind what I've been saying about how fundamentalists withdrew from the world a few decades earlier and how in 1974, these believers were trying to reverse that trend and win the world for Christ. But most importantly for our purposes here, let's note the language. It's all about evangelism and missions. It's not necessarily about taking dominion in any sort of political sense. The first paragraph of the Lausanne Covenant reads as follows, quote, We affirm our belief in the one eternal God, creator and Lord of the world, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who governs all things according to the purpose of his will. He has been calling out from the world a people for himself and sending his people back into the world to be his servants and his witnesses, for the extension of his kingdom, the building up of Christ's body, and the glory of his name. Now, note how the language changes. They say, We confess with shame 
that we have often denied our calling and failed in our mission by being conformed to the world or by withdrawing from it. Yet we rejoice that, even when born by earthen vessels, the gospel is still a precious treasure. It concludes by saying, To the task of making that treasure known in the power of the Holy Spirit, we desire to dedicate ourselves anew. End quote. The only aspect of that opening statement that might be considered dominionist at all is the mention of how God governs all things according to the purpose of his will. But in the main, what the covenant is promoting is truly nothing more than classic Orthodox Christianity. And note that when they talk about Christ's kingdom, it's immediately linked to evangelism, the growth of the church. In their words, this is accomplished by the building up of Christ's body. If you're not familiar with the jargon, Christ's body is insider language, it's Christianese for the church, in case you're not familiar with biblical terminology. It's worth pointing out, however, that Billy Graham wasn't exactly blameless, though, in the run-up to what would become the Christian right, lest we let him off the hook too much. He's known for being a famous evangelist, of course, who held massive crusades and rallies all over the world in an effort to convert millions to Christ. He was also known for being fairly ecumenical, too, which earned him a lot of scorn from fundamentalists. But let's also not forget that he supported America's side in the Cold War, seeing it as tied to part of God's plan for the nation. As far back as the early 1940s, he had long railed against the threat posed by communism and the secular, godless, atheistic society of the Soviet Union. He was also a fervent Christian nationalist, too, which was tied to his anti-communism stance decades before guys like Falwell came to prominence and pushed his agenda. Just listen to his words as he preached to a crowd of some 40,000 people in 1940 from the steps of the U.S. Capitol about the dangers of communism and what role America had to play in the whole thing. Ladies and gentlemen all over the world today, the specter of communism is not only a haunting reality, but communism today is sweeping from one end of the world to the other and infiltrating every nation of the world. I believe today that the battle is between communism and Christianity. And I believe the only way that we're going to win that battle is for America to turn back to God and back to Christ and back to the Bible at this hour. So there you have it. Decades before Falwell ever came to prominence, Falwell was just a young, young boy in Lynchburg, Virginia, when Billy Graham was preaching that sermon from the Capitol steps. Notice how he links communism and Christianity. That's the war. That's the battle. This is in 1940, one year before America even entered World War II and well before the Cold War. So these beliefs have been around a very, very long time. Guys like Billy Graham laid the groundwork for people like Falwell and others to pick it up two and three decades later. Now, I don't want to get too much more into Billy Graham, but there's one more aspect that we have to remember about his career as an influential evangelical was that he was famously known as the pastor to presidents. Beginning with President Harry S. Truman, he served as the spiritual advisor to 12 presidents, culminating with Obama as his final president. Graham thus paved the way as a model of what a successful and high-profile evangelical leader could look like by successfully intermingling politics and religion. He also made it clear to Americans that white Christian evangelicalism was the preferred religion of all the presidents that he served as a spiritual advisor to. So in the Trump era, of course, we had four years of Paula White Kane serving as his spiritual advisor. We've got Billy Graham to thank for setting that example for us. 
I mean, just look at how Billy Graham paved the way for future evangelicals to get involved in politics and advise powerful senators, congressmen and women, as well as president. For example, we heard his sermon from the Capitol steps in 1940. He conducted the first religious service on the steps of the U.S. Capitol in 1952. He was especially close to President Richard Nixon, and he led a campaign to oppose John F. Kennedy as a presidential candidate. Why? Because he was Catholic. When Nixon won in 1968, Billy Graham frequently visited the White House. He advised Nixon on the terminology to use when speaking to Christians. He even led Nixon's private religious services, perhaps most infamously in 2002 and then later in 2009, the so-called Richard Nixon tapes were released of conversations that he and Billy Graham had had in 1972 and 73. Graham was captured on tape having these conversations with Nixon, stating that he believed that Jews controlled the American media, calling it a stranglehold, and strategizing that if Nixon were re-elected, they might be able to do something about the situation. He also referred to a group of Jewish journalists as the synagogue of Satan, although he later apologized for those comments and swore up and down that he was not anti-Semitic, his image will forever be tarnished. But the point was that Billy Graham had long modeled evangelical involvement in politics. He was anti-communist. He supported the Vietnam War. He upheld the traditional biblical patriarchal views of women and wives and opposed homosexuality and same-sex marriage. All of these issues and more would go on to form what would become the main planks in the platform of the Christian right. And let's not forget that his son Franklin Graham inherited his famous father's mantle of leadership over his organization after he died. Franklin Graham, in my opinion, is far worse than his father ever was. Among other things, he's well known for being rabidly homophobic and Islamophobic. He's long been known as a diehard Trump supporter, too. During Trump's presidency, for example, Franklin Graham also provided religious cover for Trump's many horrible statements, as well as his actions and cruel policies. But let's get back to the Lausanne Covenant. Even as these Christian influencers were drafting this missional evangelistic statement in Switzerland in 1974, there was also a very important development taking place around the same time in the world of Christian fundamentalism. The fundamentalists were in the process of revitalizing their image, rebranding themselves as evangelicals. They were climbing up out of their entrenched positions and engaging in a culture war for the heart and soul of America and indeed the world. And as we'll see, a huge portion of this move involved one Reverend Jerry Falwell of Lynchburg, Virginia, when we return from the break. When we come back from the break, we're going to get even more into this issue of who was Jerry Falwell. We're going to examine his roots in fundamentalism and trace how he was able to shift from this sort of fundamentalist avoidance of the evil world into not only getting involved in the world in terms of a moral crusade to save America in terms of Christian nationalism and American exceptionalism, but then how was he able to make that full transition into politics and obviously get so many evangelicals, Catholics, Mormons, Orthodox, conservative Jews, a huge number of people on the conservative side involved in the political realm at all in the first place going back to the mid-1970s. And this, as I will argue, is the legacy of Donald Trump's overwhelmingly white, evangelical, rabid, diehard base. Even though he's left office now, 
They're still there. Trumpism is not going away. It hasn't gone away, as so many people have said, even though he's left office. So before we get back into Jerry Falwell Sr., I just wanted to mention what's coming up in the next few episodes here on MindShift Podcast. Well, we're going to be carrying on this Falwell legacy theme. I've got an episode coming up next with Callum Best, who, as I talked about in the episode with Frank Schaefer, he is the one of the founders of the Save 71 organization, which is an organization that was founded in 2020 by alumni as well as some current students then at the time of Liberty University, which, of course, Jerry Falwell Sr. founded originally as Liberty Baptist College, I think it was, then it was changed to Liberty University. They're trying to save it. From what? Well, they were trying to save it from Jerry Falwell Jr., who at the time was still the president. And of course, he was enveloped in scandals himself and finally forced out. So Callum and I had a really interesting conversation about the legacy of Liberty University. Why do you even want to save the thing? I asked him at the end. So he provides some really interesting insights and answers from a person who went to Liberty University and has since deconstructed. So he's on an interesting journey. So that's coming up too. Also, I'm going to be speaking with Hemant Mehta this week. This is really cool to be able to chat with him because, of course, he's an author, he's a blogger, he's an atheist activist. He runs the Friendly Atheist blog on Patheos, and he's also one of the co-hosts of the weekly podcast called the Friendly Atheist Podcast. So this is going to be cool. He does a lot of stuff on the Christian right. So we're going to be continuing with some of the stuff that I've been covering, especially in terms of the relevant information in what's going on both in Trump world and the sort of evangelical right that supports him still. And again, this is something that Peter Montgomery and I, we're covering every month on my YouTube channel. In fact, the most recent episode we did just a couple of weeks ago now is up on my YouTube channel. We had an absolutely fascinating conversation as always. This time we took a look at Hank Kuhneman, who's one of the prophets who predicted Trump was going to win. And he is now gyrating and twisting around, trying to come up with some kind of answer as to why he wasn't wrong. We also looked at Mario Murillo and took a look at Jonathan Kahn, who hosted The Return. And I talk about him in this podcast as well. So really interesting stuff with Peter Montgomery. Those go up every month. So if you subscribe to my YouTube channel, you won't miss any of the new content that comes out. So some cool content headed your way. We've got Callum Best next, and I'm also going to be talking with Hemant Demetta soon. That'll come out as a bonus episode. And then finally, I had a really fascinating conversation with Dr. Death, Terry Daniel. We talked about death, religion, religious trauma syndrome, mental health and religion. Absolutely fascinating conversation. So look for that episode with Dr. Terry Daniel, Dr. Death as well. So let's get on back into this conversation about Jerry Falwell Sr. Let's take a really good hard look at his sort of origins, where he comes out of the fundamentalist movement, how that relates to the segregationist movement in the South, and so many other things as we continue to look at this profile of the Christian right, Jerry Falwell Sr. and the founding of the Moral Majority. Let's go back and revisit the question that I asked at the top of the show. Who exactly was Jerry Falwell Sr.? Well, he was born in Lynchburg, Virginia in 1933. He died in 2007 at age 73. According to his own biography, he got saved at 18, and at just the tender age of 22, he founded the Thomas Road Baptist Church there in Lynchburg that would later grow in size until it became a megachurch. But he wasn't content with just founding a massive church. 
he had to start a college too. He would later go on to oversee not only a sprawling media empire, beginning with his radio show The Old Time Gospel Hour, and then transitioning that over into television, he also founded the Lynchburg Christian Academy in 1967, and then Lynchburg Baptist College in 1971. It went through a couple of name changes. It would be renamed Liberty Baptist College in 1977, and finally Liberty University in 1985. He's also famous, or I should say infamous, for starting such organizations as the Moral Majority, which we'll hear about more in a minute. It ran from 1979 to 1989, and as we'll see, it had a massive role in the origins of the Christian right, as well as the evangelical involvement in power politics. In a biography on Jerry Falwell on the site yourdictionary.com, the article makes this important point. Quote, the religion preached from Falwell's pulpit was what used to be called fundamentalist. The entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation, Falwell said, is the inerrant word of God and totally accurate in all respects. At times, he sounded an apocalyptic trumpet. This is the terminal generation before Jesus comes. Unlike the folkish old-time religion, formerly practiced in some rural areas, Falwell's gospel employed modern urban methods of persuasion. A symposium in June 1972 on how to build a super-aggressive local church drew 5,000 Baptist church workers from all over the United States to hear one of Falwell's close associates declare, God is impressed with a growing church. We believe Jesus must be sold as effectively as Coca-Cola, end quote. Falwell and his very large Thomas Road Baptist Church in Lynchburg were increasingly becoming about going back into the world and winning the culture wars. But they didn't initially see themselves as getting involved in politics. No, at first it was all about a super aggressive evangelism and church growth philosophy of ministry. What makes the whole thing so fascinating is that early on in his ministry, however, Falwell had preached a typically fundamentalist doctrine of separation from the evil world. Using the language of classic fundamentalist preachers of the past, that world was characterized by Falwell as a lost, desperate, and dying world that needed saving through the gospel of Jesus Christ. But how exactly was that world supposed to be reached with the gospel? The problem that Falwell and others faced was this. If, as a fundamentalist, you withdraw from the world, how then are you supposed to reach that world from your isolationist position? We heard this in the language of the Laws and Covenant. They argued that not only had God called Christians out from the world, he was also about sending them back in. Even a cursory reading of the so-called Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28 makes it clear that one of Jesus' last commands to his followers was for them to go into all the world and make disciples. It's pretty difficult to go into the world and make disciples if all you're doing is hiding within the safe confines of your fundamentalist church. There was also a long-standing tradition within theologically conservative Christianity that, as the old hymn has it, the world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. I well remember singing that hymn as a kid. John Meacham, though, in a 2006 Newsweek article reflecting back on the election of President Jimmy Carter 30 years earlier and the role that evangelicals played in helping get him elected, commented that, quote, at the time, Evangelical political involvement was rarer than it is now, partly because of an old religious tradition that eschewed the pursuit of temporal power. Put not thy trust in princes, the psalmist had said, and much later, Jesus told Pilate, 
My kingdom is not of this world, end quote. A decade before the election of Jimmy Carter, this fairly common fundamentalist view fit right into the messages that Falwell was preaching at the time, the mid-1960s. He held that Christians had no business getting involved with such worldly concerns like challenging moral issues in society or with political reforms. In fact, during the civil rights era, Falwell was against white preachers getting involved in it at all. According to a very informative 1981 article on Falwell, in The New Yorker, which I'll refer to quite a bit in this episode, Francis Fitzgerald offers up the following perspective. Quote, but Falwell is also, as he has said, a separatist, premillennialist, pre-tribulationist sort of fellow. He believes, he has said, that this is the terminal generation before Jesus comes. And in 1965, he eloquently argued the doctrine of separation from the world in a sermon called Ministers and Marchers. Now, quoting from Falwell's 1965 sermon, Falwell said, As far as the relationship of the church to the world, it can be expressed as simply as the three words which Paul gave to Timothy. Preach the word. We have a message of redeeming grace through a crucified and risen Lord. This message is designed to go right to the heart of man and there meet his deep spiritual need. Nowhere are we commissioned to reform the externals, we're not told to wage wars against bootleggers, liquor stores, gamblers, murderers, prostitutes, racketeers, prejudiced persons or institutions, or any other existing evil as such. Our ministry is not reformation, but transformation. The gospel does not clean up the outside, but rather regenerates the inside. And Falwell went on. He said, while we are told to render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, in the true interpretation, we have very few ties on this earth. We pay our taxes, cast our votes as a responsibility of citizenship, obey the laws of the land, and other things demanded of us by the society in which we live. But at the same time, we are cognizant that our only purpose on this earth is to know Christ and to make him known. And he concluded by saying, Believing the Bible as I do, I would find it impossible to stop preaching the pure, saving gospel of Jesus Christ and begin doing anything else, including fighting communism or participating in civil rights reforms, end quote. What is truly fascinating, though, is that by 1981, Falwell had denounced that earlier stance he had taken as a false prophecy. But what exactly changed for Falwell? How did he go from advocating that Christians should be separate from the world and politics, the classic fundamentalist message, to the founding of the moral majority in 1979? with the express intent of influencing secular politics and public policies. As I mentioned a bit ago, whereas decades earlier the fundamentalists had withdrawn from the evil world, from his bully pulpit at Thomas Road, Falwell had been railing for decades about the evils of such vices as homosexuality, gambling, alcohol and alcoholism, pornography, fornication, adultery, sex before marriage. Getting people saved, he figured, would then change their behavior and make them not only better Christians who pleased God with their obedient lifestyle, but it would make them better citizens of society too. In his view, this was the transformation of the world that the gospel would then bring about. As he had mentioned in his 1965 sermon, Ministers and Marches, he wasn't interested in the externals. Get a person saved, he figured, and God would take care of regenerating the person from the inside out. But this militant gospel wasn't just the sort of lifestyle evangelism that a great many Christians talk about today. You know, it's all about building relationships with non-believers with the aim of establishing enough credibility so that they can tell them about the gospel. I can well remember as a pastor teaching my congregation this very method of evangelism. 
But for Falwell, it was about engaging in a war for the hearts and minds of unregenerate unbelievers. And we can see this philosophy of ministry coming forth most clearly in his sermons. The two most common analogies that Falwell used to describe the goals of Christianity were sports and warfare. In terms of sports, he would say that Christians were meant to be champions or victors, but they were also team players striving toward a common goal together. Part of this message involved portraying Christian men as being rugged and tough. Falwell, himself a former star athlete, loved to cast himself as a brawny and dogged leader, willing to be a champion and a leader for the gospel. But Christ himself, according to Falwell, was one too. Fitzgerald notes that, quote, such super masculinity is a quality he, that is Falwell, attributes also to Christ. In one sermon last year, he denounced the tradition of portraying Christ as a thin man with long hair and flowing robes. Christ wasn't effeminate. The man who lived on this earth was a man with muscles. Christ was a he-man, he concluded triumphantly, and loud amens went up from the congregation, end quote. It's interesting to note, by the way, that decades later, the bullying and abusive Mars Hill megachurch pastor Mark Driscoll said virtually the same exact thing about Jesus. In a sermon, Driscoll concluded that he couldn't serve a wimpy Jesus that he could beat up. No, Jesus was a kick-ass warrior. So this notion of toxic evangelical masculinity is nothing new. In fact, if you're interested in exploring that topic further and how it laid the foundation for the white evangelical worship of Trump, then check out Kristen Cobes Dumais' excellent book, Jesus and John Wayne, or listen in to the podcast episode that we did on her book last year. But to get back to Falwell and his sermonizing, as for the warfare analogy that he was so fond of using much of the time, Fitzgerald goes on to comment. She says, quote, Though Falwell frequently makes allusions to sports, it is the military analogy that is central to his view of the church and its role in the world. The local church is an organized army equipped for battle, ready to charge the enemy, he has said. The Sunday school is the attacking squad. And elsewhere, the church should be a disciplined, charging army. Christians, like slaves and soldiers, ask no questions. Many evangelists see their enterprise as one of spreading the good news and sharing the love of Christ with fellow human beings. But she says, for Falwell, evangelism is, quite simply, war, end quote. But what made Falwell unique among many fundamentalist preachers at the time wasn't necessarily his militant view of evangelism. It was his incredibly effective use of a wide variety of media channels to spread his gospel. Within a week of founding his church in 1956, Falwell was already on the radio and then ultimately transitioned into television. According to his biography, quote, a half-hour daily radio broadcast, the old-time gospel hour, launched when the church was only a week old grew into a television show which went national in 1971 and soon reached an audience estimated in the millions, end quote. Thus, as the decades went past, Falwell began to change his philosophy of ministry about Christians being involved in the evil world. Rather than changing society one new Christian at a time through evangelism and the power of the gospel, this new philosophy stated that Christians needed to put themselves in a position to be able to influence society. And what better way to do that than by becoming involved in politics. Again, quoting from that New Yorker article by Fitzgerald, she comments that the change was really inevitable. She says, quote, In a sense, it was only natural that Falwell and his people should go into politics. They had, after all, detailed and comprehensive views about the organization of society. 
and they had absolutely no doubt that their way was the correct one. Aggressive proselytizers, they had set themselves to convert everyone in the society, and therefore the society itself. Add to this missionary movement a man with leadership qualities, and you have the elements of a powerful political organization. The question then might seem to be not why Falwell went into politics, but what took him so long? The answer would seem to be the one that he gave in 1965, the doctrine of separation between the church and the world, end quote. The fact was, despite all their pious-sounding rhetoric about Christians being separate from the evil world, and even from other Christians who didn't believe exactly the way they did, for decades, fundamentalist preachers had been railing against the evils of that world. As I mentioned, they were calling their faithful followers to remove themselves from it, to remain untainted by all that evil and badness. All too often, though, they and their congregations had been spotted out in the no-man's land between the church and the world as they mounted moral crusades against the evils within society. Prohibition, for example, in the 1920s, was an example of just such a moral crusade against the evils of alcohol, led in large part by fundamentalist teetotalers. Another example would be the so-called Scopes Monkey Trial, held in 1925 against the teaching of evolution in public schools in the state of Tennessee. Once again, leading the charge were Christian fundamentalists. And even though their star lawyer, William Jennings Bryan, technically won the court case, he had been humiliated publicly for his narrow beliefs, and fundamentalist Christianity had been disgraced in the eye of the American public. In fact, it was precisely this trial and public humiliation of the fundamentalists that was one of the major factors that led a great many of them to withdraw from public life for decades and enter into political obscurity. Fitzgerald comments on the fundamentalist withdrawal from the public sector, quote, By 1920, however, the populist movement was dead, Bryan himself had left politics, and the great theological controversies had arisen, pitting conservative scriptural literalists against modernists and advocates of the social gospel. The fundamentalists, as the former group then began to call itself, saw Christian civilization threatened by an array of frightening new forces. German rationalism, the social gospel, socialism, Bolshevism, Catholicism, sexual permissiveness, and Darwinism. While the theologians erected doctrinal walls against all these new tendencies, the evangelists thundered out against the Reds in this country, the liberal immigration laws, the Catholics, the Jews, the garlic-eating immigrants, and the teaching of evolution in the schools, end quote. And it's worth noting that there's this long-standing tradition within evangelicalism of this us-versus-them mentality as well as a persecution narrative. So during this time of the fundamentalist withdrawal from the public square, what they did was they concentrated on refining and fortifying their doctrinal positions. They called these the fundamentals, and that's where the term fundamentalist comes from as it relates to these Christians. During this period of self-imposed exiles, the fundamentalists were busy forming their own denominations. They founded fundamentalist Bible colleges and seminaries across America, too. In fact, a great many fundamentalist professors left what they considered to be liberal seminaries or colleges and were part of forming such bastions of orthodoxy as they saw it. But of course, as I mentioned earlier, this led to a major problem. If, as a fundamentalist, you withdraw from society, how are you supposed to engage in evangelism? How do you save that lost and dying world if you have nothing to do with the world? How are non-believers supposed to come to Christ if all the fundamentalists are huddled behind the walls of their churches, Bible colleges, and seminaries? How is the world supposed to fulfill the Great Commission? I think in their minds, the gospel was supposed to be attractional, 
People would simply come to church of their own volition because it was such an integral part of what it meant to be an American at the time. I'm an American, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian, I'm an American. But as we've been saying, all that isolationism had left the fundamentalists with that exact same problem. Something needed to be done, apart from engaging in moral crusades against such evils as alcohol or the teaching of evolution in public schools. For all the good it was supposed to do, prohibition with its banning of alcohol had backfired. It led to the rise of bootlegging, illegal liquor sales nationwide, a rise in drinking, and organized crime as we know it today. Their stance against evolution, as seen in the Scopes Monkey Trial, had also proven to be an embarrassing failure for the fundamentalists too. But as Sarah Diamond points out in her 1995 book, Roads to Dominion, quote, By the end of the 20th century, many evangelicals were no longer content to secure their rights to preach a gospel message. They sought to save not just lost souls, but the engines of society itself, end quote. But all that was about to change with the election of Democratic presidential candidate Jimmy Carter in 1976. Dubbed the Year of the Evangelical by Newsweek magazine, Carter's very public evangelical faith brought about new attention to theologically conservative Christians. Many within the media, as well as the average American, had never even heard the term evangelical. But this was a significant development because for the first time, those who identified as evangelicals suddenly started to realize that theirs was a potentially huge and powerful movement. That is, if someone could just get it activated and mobilized. And that realization by right-wing political activists in particular is why a man like Jerry Falwell suddenly became so attractive. He'd already spent decades building a massive base of followers and donors to his radio and TV shows. In other words, that base was simply sitting there. All that remained now was to tap into that block and build it into a powerful political organization. In that 2006 Newsweek article, looking back on the era of the Carter years, Meacham goes on to comment that, quote, In the middle of the 1970s, however, many American evangelicals decided the world required their attention. In 1965, after Bloody Sunday in Selma, Alabama, Jerry Falwell advised ministers to stay away from civil rights marches, but he soon came to see things differently. I preached in my early ministry that involvement should be shunned and urged the pastors not to march just to preach the gospel because that is what I was taught in an evangelical college, Falwell told me in an interview last summer. It was only after the early 60s, with the court rulings outlawing voluntary Bible reading and school prayer and then Roe versus Wade, that I became convinced that my position was now wrong. And I did an about-face and spent the last 30 years forming the religious right, end quote. Although I won't go into detail here, it's interesting to note that the truth of the matter was not quite so cut and dried as Falwell would have had Meacham believe. In fact, Falwell told everybody who would listen for years that it was those factors that led him to found the Christian right. But the truth of the matter is this. It wasn't the outrages of various Supreme Court rulings like removing public Bible reading and school prayer in the 60s and then Roe versus Wade in 1973 that were the primary drivers motivating Falwell and others to form the moral majority, as he claimed. Historian Dr. Randall Balmer, and from where I can tell, he himself is an evangelical, perhaps somewhat ironically. Balmer has demonstrated conclusively that it was in fact the reaction of Falwell and many other fundamentalists to the 1954 Brown versus Board of Education Supreme Court ruling that started their involvement in politics. That ruling established desegregation in American public schools and threatened to strip the tax-exempt status of any public school that insisted on remaining segregated. 
or as we'll see, segregation academies that they formed. Journalist Max Blumenthal also noted back in his 2007 article in The Nation that, quote, indeed, it was race, not abortion or the attendant suite of so-called values issues that propelled Falwell and his evangelical allies into political activism, end quote. Falwell and many other fundamentalists at the time, like Bob Jones Sr., were outraged by the Supreme Court ruling and went on to form, as I mentioned, so-called segregation academies, mainly in the South, that were predominantly white and Christian schools. Falwell himself had long been a segregationist. From his pulpit at Thomas Road Baptist Church, he thundered against the mixing of races. According to Blumenthal, Falwell preached a sermon in 1958, just four short years after the Brown versus Board of Education ruling, entitled Segregation or Integration, which Falwell made the following statement from his bully pulpit that, quote, if Chief Justice Warren and his associates had known God's word and had desired to do the Lord's will, I am quite confident that the 1954 decision would never have been made. Falwell boomed from above his congregation in Lynchburg. The facilities should be separate. When God has drawn a line of distinction, we should not attempt to cross that line. Falwell's Jeremiah continued, the term Negro does not want integration. He realizes his potential is far better among his own race. Falwell went on to announce that integration will destroy our race eventually, end quote. This line was also shared, incidentally, by fellow fundamentalist Bob Jones Sr., as I mentioned, who founded Bob Jones College, later renamed Bob Jones University. BJU was also a segregation academy. No African-American students were allowed to enroll there. Jones preached a radio sermon in April of 1960 on a South Carolina radio station entitled, Is Segregation Scriptural? The sermon itself was intended to be a biblical answer to a statement that Billy Graham had just issued publicly, disavowing Christianity and Jim Crow laws in the South. Graham had earlier come under fire for removing the ropes between black and white attendees at one of his rallies in 1953 and he had invited Dr. Martin Luther King to pray on stage at a rally in Madison Square Garden in 1957. Although Jones admitted in his sermon that there was no difference racially between Christians in the eyes of God, people of other races should not mix, and that was the way he believed God had always intended it. According to an article by Justin Taylor, quote, After the address aired, Jones had the talk transcribed and printed as a booklet, which became the schools, that is BJU, their primary statement on race and integration throughout the 1960s and 1970s and into the 1980s. The pamphlet was also sold in their campus bookstore and sent to donors and inquirers, end quote. In essence, then, Bob Jones's stance, as made clear on this sermon on race mixing, was adopted as policy by Bob Jones University. Ultimately, they would lose their tax-exempt status over their racist position officially in 1976, although proceedings had started a few years before that by the IRS. They would only regain it in 2017, but only after abandoning their former racist positions on race-mixing, interracial dating, and marriage. In 2008, Stephen Jones, the great-great-grandson of Bob Jones Sr. and the president of BJU at the time, issued a public apology on behalf of the school for the hurt they had caused so many people over the years. According to Jones, their misreading of scripture had, quote, allowed institutional policies to remain in place that were racially hurtful, end quote. Like his fellow fundamentalist preacher Bob Jones Sr., Falwell wasn't content merely to preach against the evils of race mixing and desegregation in public schools. No, he backed up his racist rhetoric with action. For example, in the early 1960s, 
when African-American high school students staged a kneel-in protest at his all-white Thomas Road Baptist Church, police evicted them from the premises. Falwell went on to form a segregation academy of his own, the Lynchburg Christian Academy, in 1967 as an all-white school for his all-white church. In 1966, the year before, when Falwell was working to form what would become the LCA, the Lynchburg News described the school he was putting together as, quote, a private school for white students, end quote. Falwell also didn't much appreciate the efforts of black Christians who were involved in the growing civil rights movement and who were staging marches and speeches nationwide. Around the same time as he was forming his own segregation academy, Falwell also railed in sermons against Dr. Martin Luther King and other African Americans who were part of the civil rights movement. He denounced the 1964 Civil Rights Act as civil wrongs. In his 1965 sermon, Ministers and Marchers, he accused King and others of having left-wing associations. He also stated that they were possibly being influenced by communism or that King was acting as a communist subversive. As we'll see in more detail later, his early racist rhetoric didn't really play well to the conservative base he was trying to build with his moral majority in the 70s. He had no choice but to tone down his public racism. For example, by 1981, in an effort to appeal to a wider base and build a broader political coalition, he kind of repudiated his former stance. He now referred to Dr. King's efforts in the civil rights movement as noble. Keep in mind that we have to examine the larger historical context also. It's very important to remember that the Southern Baptist Convention withdrew from the Northern Baptist churches over the issue of slavery even before the Civil War. After the war, a great many Southern Baptists resented any sort of church or government interference from outside or by the North. In the 1950s and 60s, most white Southern Baptists conveniently avoided such issues like, you know, their part in promoting slavery, their role in the Civil War and its root causes, the very real presence of the KKK in the South, the horrific violence perpetrated against African Americans, including such things as lynchings, black churches being burned and bombed, and the incredibly disturbing nationwide images being broadcast on TV of white police officers with dogs and fire hoses being turned loose on African American civil rights marches. And I think on a wider scale, too, they just preferred to avoid the shocking racial inequalities that were tearing the nation apart at the time. In the main, then, many in the South were content simply to leave things the way they were and ignore the massive changes going on in the outside world. As long as everybody knew their roles and stayed in their own racial lanes and lived in their own neighborhoods, things were fine. Part of that avoidance of the wider world was also a rejection of politics. Thus, when the government started meddling in their church business, as they saw it, people like Falwell and Jones Sr. were outraged and led the charge to open up segregation academies. But there'd be consequences to this move. As I mentioned before, many of these segregation academies, like Bob Jones University, ended up losing their tax-exempt status for their defiance of the law. As a result, fundamentalists like Falwell and Jones were furious at the government for, in their view, overreaching into the realm of the church. The fact was, however, that when it came time to try and motivate the potentially huge voting block of conservative evangelicals, Jews, Mormons, and Catholics to cast their ballots for their preferred political candidates, issues like segregation, racism, and the loss of tax-exempt status for segregated schools weren't exactly prime drivers. So they settled on issues like abortion, homosexuality, and the threats of the Equal Rights Amendment, the ERA, instead. Those issues proved to be far more effective at motivating Christians and Catholics and Jews and so forth to become involved in politics. So when reporters or journalists would ask him 
What motivated him to get involved in politics, thus repudiating his earlier position, telling Christians that they should be separate from the evil world, Falwell would usually give out a variety of answers. He'd talk about the evils of abortion and the passage of Roe v. Wade in 1973, a so-called explosion of pornography sweeping the nation, the federal government's efforts to interfere in the affairs of Christian schools, or the FCC's application of the Fairness Doctrine in reference to homosexuals. But the truth is, it wasn't entirely clear. He'd also stated in June of 1981 that he and his fellow evangelicals really hadn't paid much attention to the abortion issue in the first few years after Roe v. Wade. As Max Blumenthal points out, quote, while abortion clinics sprung up across the United States during the early 1970s, evangelicals did little. No pastors invoked the Dred Scott decision to undermine the legal justification for abortion. There were no clinic blockades, no passionate cries to liberate the pre-born. For Falwell and his allies, the true impetus for political action came when the Supreme Court ruled in Green v. Connolly to revoke the tax-exempt status of racially discriminatory private schools in 1971, end quote. That was around the same time that the IRS began to move on revoking the tax-exempt status of Bob Jones University, and then it was officially revoked in 1976. So if it wasn't his outrage over the legalization of abortion in 1973 with the passage of Roe versus Wade, as he was so fond of telling people later, what was it exactly that led Falwell into politics in the first place? It's looking more and more obvious that it was, in reality, Falwell's deep involvement in this issue of race and segregation. But as I've been saying, these sorts of issues wouldn't prove to be very effective drivers in his efforts to build a large conservative political base. According to Fitzgerald, there's a more obvious explanation. Falwell's involvement in politics didn't happen overnight. The move had been several years in the making. She states, quote, Falwell did not announce his decision to go into politics until 1979, but he had begun to move in the direction of the political arena some years earlier. According to former associates, the impetus came from the demands of his television ministry. His trips around the country seemed to convince him that he could reach a far wider audience by talking about family issues than by talking theology. In any case, around the mid-70s, the emphasis of his preaching changed. Instead of attacking other religious creeds and the evils of drink, he now attacked pornography, homosexuality, abortion, and the ERA, end quote, the Equal Rights Amendment. The moral majority didn't happen until 1979. But three years earlier, in the bicentennial year of 1976, Falwell began touring the nation doing what he called I Love America rallies, these were elaborately choreographed affairs that took place on the steps of many a state capitol building. Falwell also publicly attacked Democratic candidate Jimmy Carter for giving an interview to Playboy magazine. He said instead he'd be voting for a Republican Gerald Ford. And this is a funny kind of a side note. I remember as a kid, I was 10 years old in 1976, and I can remember asking my dad who he'd be voting for for president, and he said he would not be voting for Jimmy Carter because he gave an interview to Playboy magazine. So my dad apparently was listening to Jerry Falwell. Then in 1977, Falwell attached himself to the moral crusading campaigns led by such activists as Phyllis Schlafly of the Eagle Forum and the anti-gay evangelical Anita Bryant. Then, just a year later in 1978, he launched the Clean Up America campaign. Although it was a fundraiser for his old-time Gospel Hour show, in the flyers and leaflets that he sent out to potential donors, they contained such questions as, Do you approve of known practicing homosexuals teaching in public schools? 
Falwell promised to send the answers he received from his base on to Congress and to the president. During the nation, promoting himself, Falwell began sending out booklets and pamphlets advising his followers on how to put pressure on local politicians. Then, in 1979, he resumed his I Love America rallies, and it was this, more than anything else, that plunged him into political involvement. Up to that point, when he would form the Moral Majority in the summer of 1979, his campaigning across America had allegedly been about a moral crusade to clean up the nation. And when we return from the break, we're going to take a closer look at how exactly the Moral Majority was formed, who were the major players that helped put it together alongside Jerry Falwell, and then we'll conclude this episode with an analysis of the enduring legacy of Falwell's Moral Majority on America and the world today. Before we conclude this episode, I just wanted to take a few minutes and give a huge thank you to the latest patrons of this show. Thank you to Wandra Hedrick, who actually increased her pledge up to $5 per month. Alice, as well, is a $5 contributor, and Sarah Mail. So thank you all for supporting the show. For Alice and Wanda, I'm going to be sending out today, just as soon as I finish doing this recording, your gift all the way from North Wales, which is what you get when you are a $5 a month supporter of this show on Patreon. If you support the show at a $10 a month level, I'll send you a free Mindship Podcast t-shirt. In fact, I just got a message last night from Mark Wilkes, who I sent a Mindship Podcast t-shirt to. He's a $10 a month supporter, and he sent me this really cool picture on Facebook Messenger of the t-shirt along with a sword laying on the floor. And his message was, I love wearing your shirt, by the way. I'm a longtime European martial arts practitioner, and it's been one of my go-tos at training. I'm waiting for someone to ask about it. And I said, that's cool. Way to represent, man. And he said, thanks. It's really hard to convey how much of an emotional release your podcast and Facebook page have been. Living where I do, which is the Deep South, is literally like a weight off my chest. I think that's been a feeling for a lot of folks. So thanks, Mark, for sending me that message. I'm glad you're enjoying that t-shirt, wearing it to training. Hopefully someone will ask you about it and you can explain what the whole thing's all about. But I think that's true. What we're doing is we're building a community made up mainly of folks who came out of religion, not necessarily evangelical Christianity, although that tends to be a predominant story that we get in our closed group. And it's really a supportive community. And in fact, that's why I do these Zoom calls every month. Now we're up to three calls a month. So that is a just a great way to connect with people. So what we're doing is on the first or second week of the month on a Sunday, we're doing a patrons only Zoom call just for the people who support the show on Patreon. And then the other two calls that we do are a little bit more open just for the people of the closed group though. We've already held the first patrons only call in February. And then last week as I'm doing this recording, we had Dean Crossats of the People I Meet podcast come in. That was fantastic. At some point, I will be posting that up on the Mindship Podcast Facebook page so you can look at that call. Then this Sunday, the 28th of February, we've got Seven. He's the rapper out of Jacksonville, Florida that was on the show a while ago. He's coming in as our guest. Then in March, we've got two specialists on religious trauma syndrome. We've got Thomas Hanna on the 21st, followed on the 28th with Andrew Jasko, both of whom are therapists, both of whom are dealing with religious trauma syndrome in their clients. And so those are going to be absolutely fascinating calls. And in fact, I'm going to be doing a standalone podcast with Andrew Jasko talking about the use of psychedelics in dealing with 
healing and religious trauma syndrome and spirituality. So that is going to be a fascinating conversation. So once again, I just wanted to say thank you to everybody who supports the show on Patreon. If you want to be a part of that closed group and be a part of those really interesting, fascinating Zoom calls, you can find out how to support the show by clicking the link in the show notes on the Patreon page. We'll give you everything you need to know about what tier you want and what gift you'll get if you support the show. All right, so let's get on back. Let's conclude this very long episode. I appreciate you sticking with me, but I think you'll find the analysis brings it all home as we look at the legacy of Falwell Sr., the founding of the Moral Majority, along with many other far-right activists in the Christian right and how there's a direct through line between what those guys were doing decades ago and what we see in the white evangelical Trump base, the whole QAnon thing. How does it all relate? I'm going to try to tie it all together as we conclude this episode. Forming of the Moral Majority in 1979, and thus Falwell's formal entrance into politics, did not happen unassisted. As he toured the country with his I Love America tours beginning in the mid-1970s, and he became more and more of a public figure, he found himself increasingly in the company of right-wing movers and shakers. We're talking about powerful Washington-based conservative political organizers and activists. And there was another major shift occurring at the same time. By the late 1970s, although they had initially been excited by the fact that their votes had helped propel the clear evangelical Democratic candidate Jimmy Carter into office in 1976, conservative Christians would eventually turn on him. As his administration went on, they soured on his liberal policies. Carter, for his part, never really embraced the religious right. Men like Falwell and others looked to evangelical-friendly candidate Republican Ronald Reagan in 1980 to usher in a new era. All that was needed was for them to organize the conservative American base, turn them against Carter, and help propel Reagan into office in what would become known as the Reagan Revolution. According to Fitzgerald, in the run-up to forming the moral majority in 79, Falwell began increasingly to associate with the following key players who would help form the Christian right, among whom were the following. She says, quote, Richard Vigoret, the direct male expert who had raised money for a number of right-wing candidates, including George Wallace. Howard Phillips, who had been brought into the Nixon administration to dismantle the Office of Economic Opportunity. Paul Weirich, a former journalist who had worked as an aide to two Republican senators. Robert Billings, a former president of Hiles Anderson College in Crown Point, Indiana, and president of the National Christian Action Coalition, which was leading a campaign to keep the IRS from taxing Christian schools, and Ed McAteer, a former salesman and the field director for the Christian Freedom Foundation. During the years of the Carter administration, these men had set up a network of think tanks, education lobbies, and political action groups, including the Heritage Foundation, Phillips' Conservative Caucus, Wyrick's Committee for the Survival of a Free Congress, and Billings' National Christian Action Coalition. In preparation for the next election, they met not only with Falwell, but also with James Robeson, Pat Robertson, and a number of other evangelists. Out of their discussion came three new organizations. The Religious Roundtable, directed by McAteer, with James Robeson as its vice president. The Christian Voice, headed by the Reverend Robert Grant with its Political Action Committee, directed by Gary Jarman, a former legislative director of the American Conservative Union, and the Moral Majority, whose first executive director was Billings, end quote. Although Falwell liked to claim that the moral majority was solely his idea, 
The truth is that he was approached by Paul Weyrich, who at the time was trying to motivate blue-collar Catholics and other conservatives, many of whom were apolitical. Weyrich figured that if he could get them involved politically as a voting bloc, they would become, in his words, quote, the Achilles heel of the liberal Democrats, end quote. As mentioned, Falwell was a prime candidate because for decades he'd been busy building a huge audience of listeners for his old-time Gospel Hour show. That precise audience of millions of conservative Christians were exactly the demographic that Weyrich was trying to reach in order to build his movement. And as mentioned, Falwell had by this time become a major public figure due to his Christian nationalist I Love America tours. And so he was already well known in both evangelical and fundamentalist circles as well as in the mainstream media. Thus, in the early 1970s, Weyrich made several trips down south to meet with Falwell and other fundamentalist pastors. His goal was to enlist their help to form a conservative evangelical political lobbying group and then turn it into a massive voting bloc. His vision involved starting up a grassroots conservative religious political movement that would then lend muscle to the Republican Party. According to Blumenthal, in his meetings with Falwell and the other fundamentalists, Weyrich offered up several potential hot-button issues that would mobilize both Falwell and the base he was trying to reach. In order to galvanize the potentially massive numbers of evangelicals and fundamentalists into the world of political activism, Weyrich brought up such possible topics as abortion, homosexuality, school prayer and Bible reading, and the rise of feminism. All of his pleas fell on deaf ears. Weyrich was frustrated by these early meetings with Falwell, According to Blumenthal, quote, I was trying to get these people interested in those issues and I utterly failed, Weyrich recalled in an interview in the early 1990s. What changed their mind was Jimmy Carter's intervention against the Christian schools, trying to deny them tax-exempt status on the basis of so-called de facto segregation, end quote. Now that he had Falwell's attention, the problem facing Weyrich was this, how to access that potentially massive evangelical base made up of huge numbers who had long followed Falwell via his radio and TV ministries. This is where the genius of Richard Vigore came in. As the direct mail king, he compiled mailing lists of exactly the type of people that Weyrich and others wanted to target in order to form the base of the moral majority, and thus they could go about forming that group into a powerful voting and political bloc. The fact of the matter was that many of the people that Weyrich was trying to reach, although they were conservative politically, they hadn't been all that interested in politics before. A great many of them weren't even registered to vote. So Weyrich aimed to change all that by forming a huge nationwide army of conservative voters who would also get involved in the political sector. But Falwell's base wasn't enough. Therefore, in addition to Falwell's largely fundamentalist base, Weyrich also figured that he needed to tap into other demographics that Falwell couldn't or wouldn't reach with his fundamentalist Christian nationalist gospel, like Orthodox Jews, Mormons, Catholics, and Charismatic Christians. Thus, as he and his other associates envisioned it, the moral majority would actually be an ecumenical organization targeting Mormons, conservative Catholics, Orthodox Jews, and Protestants too. The fact is that Falwell himself had never had much success in bringing those other groups in outside of his conservative fundamentalist evangelical base, or for that matter, their clergy either. And so it was that Weyrich, Falwell, and his other associates initially organized the Moral Majority, Inc., primarily as a legislative lobbying group in 1979. 
During the 1980 presidential campaign, which featured incumbent Democrat Jimmy Carter going up against former Hollywood actor and California Governor Ronald Reagan, Falwell displayed his genius for organization. He created a series of state groups headed up by pastors of churches, none of which were neither controlled nor financed by the head national moral majority organization. These pastors then formed smaller groups at the local congregational grassroots level, helping with political campaigns and endorsing various conservative candidates. In this, the moral majority would establish a template or a model for current efforts by the Christian right to mobilize congregations nationwide. Catherine Stewart lays this strategy bare in her excellent book, The Power Worshippers. She describes how organizations like the Family Research Council they view churches across the country as cells and congregants their foot soldiers in the culture war for the heart and soul of America. The leaders at the top of these organizations are like generals who issue their marching orders in the form of such things as values voter guides, telling their foot soldiers which candidates to vote for and how to become involved in their local political scene. The FRC, the Family Research Council, also hosts conferences at local churches all across the country in which they teach pastors and church leaders how to mobilize their individual congregations to become active in the political sector. Thus, Falwell and his moral majority, along with a number of other organizations founded in the early and mid-1980s, established this model for current Christian right organizations. Technically, however, this is a violation of the Johnson Amendment. Churches and preachers are not allowed to endorse politicians or publicly get involved in the political sector, or they risk losing their tax-exempt status. And back in 1980, others were quick to pick up on this too. Mainline and liberal clergymen alike were voicing a similar complaint that Falwell and his moral majority, with their involvement in politics and the mobilization of churches nationwide, were violating the Johnson Amendment, which technically they probably were. But as Falwell and other politically active fundamentalists and evangelicals saw it at the time, all those earlier Supreme Court rulings, beginning with Brown versus Board of Education in 54, and then in the 60s and 70s, stripping public schools of prayer, and then public Bible reading, followed by Roe versus Wade, all these rulings were nothing more than an attempt by the government to overturn religiously motivated laws. As they saw it, as the Puritans had too, the wall of separation was there to protect the church from the state. Thus, when the state started overturning these so-called morality-based laws, Many conservative Christians were outraged, viewing these decisions as a violation of the church-state separation. The state was overreaching and delving into the realm of religion and morality. It was now time for Christians to reclaim that lost ground and return the nation back to its moral Christian roots. These conservative evangelicals and fundamentalists, they viewed the Johnson Amendment as similarly wrong-headed and immoral too. Their argument was that, once again, the government was unfairly targeting churches and pastors, you know, the whole persecution narrative. To counter the law, Falwell and his other moral majority leaders found creative ways for pastors to skirt around the Johnson Amendment. For example, while a pastor couldn't pass out voter guides during the church service or in the sanctuary, there was nothing illegal about placing them on a stand near the front door of the church for people to pick up. Their argument was that people could choose to ignore it, or they could grab a pamphlet of their own volition. Nobody was forcing them to do anything. Or they liked to place them on car windshields during the church services out in the parking lot, which is technically off of church property, thus once again creatively skirting the law. 
So what had begun as a fundamentalist, racist rejection of the 1954 Supreme Court ruling desegregating public schools by the late 1970s had now been turned into issues of religious liberty and religious freedom that were ultimately tied to Christian nationalism. The genius of founders like Weyrich, Falwell, and others was this. They were also able to frame the whole thing as an attack on the traditional family as well. The evils of abortion, homosexuality, pornography, and the Equal Rights Amendment were all nothing more than a coordinated attack against the traditional family by the forces of secular humanism. As Blumenthal points out, quote, Along with a vanguard of evangelical icons, including D. James Kennedy, Pat Robertson, and Tim LaHaye, Falwell's organization hoisted the banner of the pro-family movement declaring war on abortion and homosexuality. But were it not for the federal government's attempts to enable little black boys and black girls to go to school with little white boys and white girls, the Christian rights culture war would likely never have come into being, end quote. In other words, the true genius of the forming of the Christian right was that it was framed as an assault on religious liberty in the family. If those attacks were allowed to continue unchallenged, they argued, then America would slide further and further into secular humanism and away from being a Christian nation. Thus, the entire enterprise was built on the base of Christian nationalism and American exceptionalism. In fact, listen to the words of Paul Weyrich, who, as we've seen, famously coined the term moral majority that was used as the title of Falwell's organization. He stated the following, according to that article by Dr. Randall Ballmer, Weyrich said, quote, The new political philosophy must be defined by us, that is, conservatives, in moral terms, packaged in non-religious language and propagated throughout the country by our new coalition, Weyrich wrote in the mid-1970s. When political power is achieved, the moral majority will have the opportunity to recreate this great nation. Weyrich believed that the political possibilities of such a coalition were unlimited, the leadership, moral philosophy, and workable vehicle are at hand, just waiting to be blended and activated, he wrote. If the moral majority acts, results could well exceed our wildest dreams, end quote. Thus, in 1979, the moral majority was born. It would last for 10 years, and during its decade of involvement in the political realm, it would be credited for helping to kick Democratic President Jimmy Carter out of office after just one term in favor of evangelical-friendly candidate Republican Ronald Reagan. The moral majority also helped to bring the issue of abortion to the front and center of the Republican Party, hammering away at the issue until it became a litmus test for conservative politicians. And it would also help to make it the single-issue topic that would decide many an evangelicals vote for or against a particular candidate. For example, how many people said they voted for Donald Trump both in 2016 and 2020 because he was supposedly pro-life and Hillary Clinton or Joe Biden were pro-choice? So as we reflect back on what Falwell was able to accomplish, the irony of the whole thing is this. In that 10 years that the moral majority ran its course, Falwell himself had to compromise in a number of areas. Although he never formally renounced his roots, ultimately he had no choice but to temper his fiery fundamentalist rhetoric in order to achieve his political aims. Into the 1980s, he took a large amount of the credit for forcing Carter out of office after one term and helped to usher in the so-called Reagan Revolution. The base that he helped build would go on to help elect both Bushes, father and son, and ultimately would bring us Donald Trump. 
But as time went on, his organization grew more powerful and he became more widely known. But Falwell faced a stark choice as he sought to build a large and diverse coalition of conservative voters and political activists nationwide. On the one hand, he could choose to remain that firebrand fundamentalist preacher that his congregation at Thomas Road Baptist Church had come to rely on to interpret the outside world for them from a stark biblical black and white literalist point of view. As Francis Fitzgerald remarked, what they really wanted was for him to create a church that was a haven of security from the evil world, but one with windows to that outside world. But on the other hand, Falwell's moral majority, as we've seen, was a pluralistic and widely diverse conservative religious organization. It was made up of Catholics, Jews, Mormons, hardline Christian fundamentalists, charismatic Christians, and more mainstream conservative evangelicals alike. Falwell had no choice but to tone down his rants against the wide variety of sins he'd long preached against that he claimed were destroying the moral fabric of America and were turning the nation away from God. As he grew more and more famous, he mellowed somewhat, adapting his preaching style in order to reach a broader, less extremist audience. Sins that he'd strongly condemned before now suddenly were a bit more tolerated. He also had to appeal to the typical Republican businessmen and women who funded the party, as well as to GOP politicians. Fiery fundamentalist rhetoric and diatribes about end times prophecy simply weren't going to motivate the large numbers of people that he was trying to reach with his message. Therefore, when he shut down the moral majority after his run after a decade, he had determined that it had finished its course. Essentially, in the long run, it didn't really achieve the long-lasting results that he had envisioned for it in the years leading up to its formation. However, as we've seen, the moral majority and other Christian right organizations that were founded around that same time blazed a path for organizations that are still around today. When Falwell shut down the moral majority in 89, a lot of people at the time breathed a sigh of relief. But it would be a short-lived sigh of relief. The mid and late 1980s would see the rise of such figures as Pat Robertson as a presidential candidate. And then through the 1990s and the 2000s, we would see a concerted effort on the part of many conservative, if not fundamentalist Christians, very militant people who tried and in many ways succeeded at taking over the Republican Party. Before we get to the analysis of Falwell and his moral majority, let's let Richard Florey have the last word. He's been studying the religious right for over 20 years, and he wrote about the legacy of Falwell and the moral majority in the conversation in 2017, 10 years after Falwell's death. On his legacy, Florey commented, quote, Scholars such as sociologist Martin Riesbrot have argued that Movements such as the Moral Majority were patriarchal protest movements intended to reestablish the leadership and authority of males in their families, in government, and in religious institutions. The emergence and popularity of the Moral Majority came at a time when there were growing efforts to establish the rights of women, people of color, and the LGBTQ community. Moral Majority, thus, represented the conservative religious reaction to those efforts. And he goes on. The moral majority drew primarily from white fundamentalists and evangelical Christians, although it also included conservative Catholics and mainline Protestants. It thus mobilized a broader conservative religious and political coalition than just white conservative evangelicals. Throughout its 10 years of existence, the moral majority became a decisive and powerful force within conservative politics and the Republican Party. 
Falwell and the Moral Majority work with other equally conservative evangelical and fundamentalist Christian leaders, such as James Dobson, Tim LaHaye, Pat Robertson, Phyllis Schlafly, and the like. Ultimately, this broad coalition of conservatives, mostly white Christians, came to represent the religious right. It has had an enormous impact on both the Republican Party and on public policy more generally since its founding, end quote. Jerry Falwell Sr. died in 2007 and handed the keys to his beloved Liberty University to his now-disgraced son, Jerry Jr., and the keys to his Thomas Road Baptist Church to another one of his sons, Jonathan Falwell. In addition to what Flory mentioned, however, there was one more long-lasting result of his movement that he helped start, as I've mentioned, that giant conservative voting bloc, a large number of which came out of movements like the Moral Majority, would ultimately be foundational in creating the broad evangelical base of support for Donald Trump in 2016 and in 2020. As we look to conclude this episode, let's engage in some reflection, some analysis. Let's look at the following points and see what we can make of Jerry Falwell's involvement in politics and his formation of what would become the religious right. Number one, as we've seen, a great deal of what Falwell was doing as far back as the early and mid-1970s was tied to his fervent belief in Christian nationalism. His involvement in politics, as we've also noted, was also potentially given its impetus by a dominionist theology. Here we have a combination of men like R.J. Rushdoony, more mainstream dominion theology that Christians should be in charge, as well as the influence of people like Frank and Francis Schaeffer, we also have political activism and the abortion issue, among others. Obviously, there's a direct through line here from what he and other evangelicals at the time were promoting and what a great many Trump supporters still believe. Significantly, Christian nationalism also informed how they voted. As former guests on this podcast, Andrew Whitehead and Sam Perry, have demonstrated conclusively in their excellent book, Taking America Back for God, the single most important factor influencing Trump voters both in 2016 and 2020, was their belief in Christian nationalism. And closely tied to Christian nationalism were other repugnant beliefs such as homophobia, Islamophobia, xenophobia, and so forth. Thus, a great many of Trump's base, his supporters, they were not only fine with such policies like his Muslim ban or the ban on trans troops in the military and the whole kids in cages policy at the southern border, they actually applauded them. In fact, a few years ago, then Attorney General Jeff Sessions cited biblical precedent to justify Trump's separation and imprisonment policy of undocumented immigrants, a great many of whom still to this day have not been reunited with their children. In a public statement in June of 2018, defending Trump's so-called zero-tolerance policy separating undocumented immigrant children from their mothers, Sessions made the following statement, quote, I would cite to you the Apostle Paul and his clear and wise command in Romans 13 to obey the laws of government because God has ordained them for the purpose of order, end quote. That's what Jeff Sessions said. He went on to add, quote, orderly and lawful processes are good in themselves and protect the weak and lawful, end quote. How ironic. After Sessions made that statement, later at a White House press conference, a reporter asked then Press Secretary Sarah Huckabee Sanders, herself an evangelical, where in the Bible does it say that it's moral to take children away from their mothers? Her response was as follows. She said, quote, 
I'm not aware of the Attorney General's comments or what he would be referencing, but I can say that it is very biblical to enforce the law. That is repeated throughout the Bible, end quote. Thus, the absolutely casual way in which both Sessions and Sanders, both avowedly evangelicals, use the Bible to justify a cruel and totally unnecessary Trump policy is proof positive how deeply entrenched these beliefs actually go. But as I've been saying, this Christian nationalism is nothing new. It goes back decades, and it's by now baked into the evangelical system. Just take a look at the connections between Falwell and Christian nationalism. For example, in April of 1980, less than a year after the founding of the Moral Majority, there was the first of many Washington for Jesus rallies held in Washington, D.C. Estimates vary, but we know that there were somewhere between 200 and 400 thousand evangelicals who showed up for the event, which was a record at the time. That rally would prove to be a forerunner of what would become the Christian right from a populist point of view, and it was also the same demographic that would form Trump's base decades later. In fact, just as an incidental note, in addition to that first Washington for Jesus rally, 1980 was a watershed year for the Christian right. Just a few short months after that rally, in August of that same year, Republican presidential candidate Ronald Reagan spoke at the National Affairs Campaign on Religious Liberty in Dallas, Texas. Speaking to a largely Christian audience, Reagan uttered these famous words, quote, Now, I know this is a nonpartisan gathering, and so I know that you can endorse me, but I only brought that up because I want you to know that I endorse you and what you're doing, end quote. The arena erupted in wild cheers. Then, in a shameless nod to the Christian right, Reagan stated that thanks to the efforts of men like Jerry Falwell and others that, quote, religious America is awakening perhaps just in time for our country's sake, end quote. It was at the same conference that he repeated the trope that he would use throughout both his candidacy and his presidency, that America was the shining city on a hill. Revealing his own belief in Christian nationalism, Reagan hearkened back to the pilgrims and their covenant with God on which America was allegedly founded. But of course, in the grand tradition of Christian nationalists everywhere, according to Reagan, America had lost its way morally. But it could all come back somehow, some way. He went on to say, quote, Well, the eyes of all mankind are still upon us, pleading with us, that is America, to keep our rendezvous with destiny, to give hope to all who yearn for freedom and cherish human dignity. We have God's promise that if we turn to him and ask for his help, we shall have it. With his help, we can still become that shining city upon a hill, end quote. Paul Weirich also spoke at that rally in Dallas, capturing the spirit of this new movement and how Christian nationalism could be allied with the evangelical involvement in politics to help turn America back to God. He stated, quote, We are talking about Christianizing America. We are talking about simply spreading the gospel in a political context, end quote. And Falwell had his say, too. Remember how I chronicled his earlier shift from a focus on soul winning to now political involvement? At a religious roundtable conference in 1980, where 15,000 pastors showed up to be trained in getting their congregations to be involved politically, Falwell famously made the following statement about pastors' roles in mobilizing Christians. Quote, We have a threefold primary responsibility. Number one, get them saved. Number two, get them baptized. And number three, get them registered to vote, end quote. That statement perfectly encapsulated the ethos 
by which he then lived. And it's worth noting too that during this time period, a great many Christian right political organizations were birthed in that period, the late 1970s and 80s. Among some of the more notable were the following. In 1979, Beverly and Tim LaHaye would co-found the powerful Christian lobbying group Concerned Women for America. One of the CWA's early successes, as they saw it, would be the successful overturning of the ERA, the Equal Rights Amendment. One year later, LaHaye would start up the Coalition for Traditional Values. That was a network of around 110,000 churches committed to a grassroots movement to help elect Christian candidates to office. And Tim LaHaye was also present at the birth of the Moral Majority, and he served on its first board of directors. The highly secretive Council for National Policy was established in 1981, and it is still a major force in right-wing politics. According to the site theocracywatch.org, the CNP conducts, quote, three times a year strategy sessions. The CNP was and still is an umbrella organization of right-wing leaders who gather regularly to plot strategy, share ideas, and fund causes and candidates to advance the theocratic agenda, end quote. By the way, just as an interesting side note, R.J. Rashtuni, the father of Christian Reconstructionism, attended the inaugural meeting of the CNP in 1981. Both Jerry Falwell and Paul Weirich were at that meeting too. Rushduni would cease attending CNP meetings by the late 1980s, however, believing that its members were stealing his ideas about dominionism and theonomy without giving him proper credit. Going on to other organizations, Dr. James Thompson founded the Family Research Council in 1983, as a political lobbying arm of his popular radio show, Focus on the Family, still around to this day. Under the leadership of proudly pro-Trump President Tony Perkins, the FRC remains one of the most powerful Christian right lobbying groups in America. And as part of his efforts as a presidential candidate, Pat Robertson would go on to start the evangelical advocacy group, the Christian Coalition, in 1987. It's now known as the Christian Coalition of America. This massive and well-funded organization sent out tens of millions of conservative family values voters guides to more than 100,000 churches nationwide by 1994. Robertson tapped controversial evangelical leader Ralph Reed in 1989 to head up the Christian Coalition, and Reed would then serve as its executive director until 1997. Just to give an idea of how powerful Reed was, in 1995, Time magazine featured Reed on its cover, calling him the right hand of God and crediting the Christian coalition with helping to mobilize enough conservative voters to help the Republicans take control over Congress for the first time in 40 years, as well as making huge gains in numerous state legislatures. But this episode isn't about how the Christian right grew into what it is today. Let's go back to that 1980 Washington for Jesus rally. After their votes had helped propel the avowedly evangelical president, Jimmy Carter, into office in 1976, remember, Newsweek called it the year of the evangelical, the hundreds of thousands who attended that rally just four short years later were becoming more and more aware that their movement was potentially massive and powerful politically if they could just get mobilized. That initial rally in 1980 would ultimately lay the groundwork for such current events like Jonathan Kahn's The Return event that was held in 2020, as well as the several Jericho March rallies, among other major gatherings in D.C. 
that have been held by evangelicals over the years since then. But whose idea was it to start it up? Well, the Washington for Jesus rally was spearheaded by a certain John Jimenez, pastor of Rock Church in Virginia Beach, Virginia. Jimenez had started out in politics by founding an organization called One Nation Under God, Inc., because he claimed to have received revelations and visions from God that he should go to D.C. to influence the government and the future of the United States. Out of his Christian nationalist vision, then, the Washington for Jesus movement was born. Prominent evangelicals like Falwell and Pat Robertson were some of the keynote speakers, many of whom talked about what would become some of the main planks in the Christian right platform. They talked about abortion, homosexuality, rising teen pregnancies, drug abuse, increasing divorce rates, and the threat posed by women advocating for equal rights in the ERA. These were all cast as threats to the traditional family and ultimately as potentially weakening the nation overall. All of these symptoms and more, they believed, were proof positive of the Christian nationalist fever dream that America was sliding deeper into sin and secular humanism and as a result was moving further away from the covenant with God that had been established by the founding fathers. As a result of all these corporate sins, America was ultimately inviting God's judgment. It's worth remembering, too, that all this took place in the midst of the Cold War. So these fundamentalists and evangelicals, they argue that America's increasing acceptance of such things as homosexuality and abortion would lead God to judge the nation. This, they fervently believed, would most likely take the form of a successful attack on America by the Soviet Union, which was the main boogeyman at the time. Incidentally, just as a side note, ever since the collapse of the Soviet Union, that threat is basically gone. Now, the current boogeyman invoked by the Christian right are Islamist terrorists. Perhaps somewhat ironically, critics of the rally, such as the National Council of Churches, denounced it as an effort by fundamentalists to Christianize the government. Looking back on it now, we can see that it was a very prescient denunciation because this was exactly what these guys were trying to do. And once again, we see a connection between this movement and Trump's evangelical advisory board, among other things that evangelicals were involved in with the government during his presidency. Among the many evangelical leaders who spoke at that Washington for Jesus rally, which was designed primarily to push Christians to vote for Ronald Reagan, was Bill Bright, founder of the Campus Crusade for Christ, which is now called Crew. Bright was also one of the very first, along with YWAM, the Youth with a Mission, founder Lauren Cunningham, to articulate the Seven Mountains Mandate Dominion Theology teaching. According to a book on the Christian right by John Turner, at that rally, Bill Bright stood before that huge crowd and made the following statement, quote, from the platform, Bright offered his interpretation of the source of the country's problems, asserting that we've turned from God and God is chastening us. You go back to 1962 and 1963 when the Supreme Court banned school-sponsored prayer and Bible reading, Bright argued, and you'll discover a series of plagues that came upon America. Bright cited the Vietnam War, increased drug use, racial conflict, Watergate, and a rise in divorce, teenage pregnancy, and alcoholism as a result of those decisions. God is saying to us, he concluded, wake up, wake up, wake up. Unless we repent and turn from our sin, warned Bright, we can expect to be destroyed, end quote. And this sort of talking point was nothing new. As we've seen, Falwell himself had spoken numerous times, making such statements as, we need to take America for Christ, or we need to make America a Christian nation again. 
But this full-throated Christian nationalism, as well as a pervasive idea that America was founded on Judeo-Christian principles, are themselves complete and total fabrications. Andrew Seidel clearly demonstrated this in his excellent book, The Founding Myth, Why Christian Nationalism is Un-American. He states it clearly, the core tenets of Christian nationalism are nothing more than a myth based on a common well of lies that Christian nationalists like Falwell and more recently Christian nationalist historian David Barton of Wall Builders, they built an entire career out of promoting this belief widely. In fact, Seidel states that when you examine the phrase Judeo-Christian, it doesn't even bear up under scrutiny. He comments that, quote, Judeo is a sop, a fig leaf tossed about to avoid controversy and complaint. It is simply a morsel of inclusion offered to soften the edge of an exclusionary Christian movement, end quote. It's actually a modern movement. He goes on to state that, quote, Christian nationalists are historical revisionists bent on restoring America to the Judeo-Christian principles on which they wish it were founded. They believe that secular America is a myth, and under the guise of restoration, they seek to press religion into every crevice of government, end quote. Number two, although Falwell Sr. wasn't really an explicit card-carrying dominionist or Christian reconstructionist, he was influenced by the dominionist ideas espoused by R.J. Rush Dooney. Rush Dooney himself was involved in some of the meetings of key influencers and leaders in the late 1970s and 1980s, out of which would come the Moral Majority and the Council for National Policy, among others. But the reality is that a great many evangelicals and fundamentalists, both back then as well as now, reject a great many of Rush Dooney's more extreme positions, such as the idea that American civil law and society should be governed by Old Testament law or a theonomy, or the idea that there should be the death penalty for a wide variety of sins or violations of the law, anything from stoning homosexuals to incorrigible teens and more. And if you remember back to that famous 1980 event that I was talking about that was held in Dallas, Texas, back in 1980, you know, the one where Ronald Reagan addressed religious conservatives saying that he endorsed them, well, there's an interesting connection to Rush Dooney and the early formation of the Christian right. In his book on Rush Dooney, Dr. Michael McVicker relates the following story from that gathering involving Rush Dooney's controversial son-in-law, Gary North. He says, quote, During a backroom meeting at the conference, Gary North turned to Christian education activist Robert Billings and lamented the fact that his father-in-law, R.J. Rush Dooney, was not among the speakers leading up to Reagan's daring endorsement. Billings, who would later help lead Jerry Falwell's moral majority and serve in the Reagan administration's Department of Education, responded, If it weren't for his books, none of us would be here. North replied, Well, nobody in the audience understands that. Billings countered, True, but we do. Insiders knew about Rush Dooney's influence, even if the rank and file did not. End quote. Well, in terms of influence by Rush Dooney, what exactly are we talking about here? Well, for one thing, Rush Dooney's 1973 manifesto on Christian Reconstructionism, his massive Institutes of Biblical Law, that would end up as one of the core textbooks within a decade of its publication at such places like Oral Roberts and Regents University Law Schools. It was also widely cited as a reference at Falwell's Liberty University. According to Sarah Diamond in her 1989 book, Spiritual Warfare, The Politics of the Christian Right, she says, quote, Largely through the impact of Rush Dooney's and North's writings, 
a concept that Christians are biblically mandated to occupy all secular institutions has become the central unifying ideology for the Christian right, end quote. But as I mentioned earlier, not everybody in the Christian right was so excited about Rush Dooney's fairly extreme ideas about establishing Old Testament law for American civil society, among others. He was also a racist and a Holocaust denier. In fact, in 1987, Bill Moyers aired a documentary on public affairs television entitled Politics and God, featuring an interview with Rush Dooney and other Reconstructionists. A great many Americans were exposed for the first time to their extremist agenda and were shocked and reviled by some of his statements. Thus, a great many leaders and influencers on the Christian right sought to distance themselves from Rush Dooney explicitly, yet at the same time embraced a great many of his dominionist leanings. What ended up happening is that a couple of different streams emerged from this period, what have been termed hard and soft dominion respectively. On the one hand, hard dominionism would be Christian Reconstructionism, which still has a following today. You can listen in, for example, to the recent episode that I did with Mark Potok about the Reconstructionist pastor Doug Wilson out of Moscow, Idaho. Rush Dooney himself was also a major force behind the early Christian school and homeschooling movements in America. Incidentally, Jerry Falwell was all in favor of both of these, calling Christian schools the, quote, boot camps of the movement behind the Christian right. If you want to hear more about this, you can check out the interview that I did last year with Dr. Milton Gaither, who's probably the foremost expert in America on the history of homeschooling. And we took a very deep dive into Rush Dooney's impact on both Christian schools and homeschooling, which, of course, in America is an absolutely massive movement, even though, as we talk about in that episode, a great many of them have never even heard the name R.J. Rush Dooney. Among some of the other influences of Christian Reconstructionism today, some would point to those who refer to themselves as the so-called Sovereign Citizens Movement. Maybe you've heard of them. Among them are a lot of anti-government or limited government, survivalist, hard money advocates. The Door Brothers, for example. They're pushing a, a God and Guns toxic mix of Reconstructionist teachings. If you want to find out more information about them, you can listen to the No Compromise podcast, which has a lot of information about this really a dangerous movement. On the other hand, soft dominionism would be movements like the Charismatic Seven Mountains Mandate, or at the very least, the driving force behind much of the Christian right and a great many of evangelicals' involvement in politics. This involves the basic notion, as we talked about at the top of the show, that Christians should be in charge of society, but they may not go so far as to say that their aim should be to establish some kind of a theocracy or theonomy, as did Rush Dooney. Number three, the Christian rights formation, as we've seen, had nothing to do with abortion, as Falwell and others claimed. Frank Schaefer, in his book Crazy for God, as well as in a couple of the podcast episodes that we did, he talks about this period. Frank speaks about how he and his famous father, Francis Schaefer, couldn't sell evangelicals on the topic of abortion back in the 1970s and 80s with their anti-abortion film series, Whatever Happened to the Human Race? Instead, the Christian right actually grew out of the outrage among fundamentalists about school desegregation, about taking prayer and Bible reading out of schools, and then eventually Roe versus Wade, Brown versus Board of Education, and the later ruling during the Carter administration in 1971 led to the founding of many segregation academies and the loss of their tax-exempt status. But as I pointed out in this episode, issues like racism and segregation and the loss of tax-exempt status 
wouldn't exactly excite the base that Falwell and others were trying to reach. Thus, in order to become more palatable, more acceptable to conservative Catholics, Mormons, Jews, and mainstream evangelical and charismatic Christians alike, the entire thing was eventually recast as a glaring example of government overreach or the state meddling in the affairs of the church. In my opinion, this was an absolutely genius move. As we've seen, racism and segregation academies and tax-exempt status, they were never going to be strong motivators of a more pluralistic, conservative religious base. But surely, everyone who considered him or herself religious would be concerned, perhaps even outraged, at things like government overreach into the sphere of religion. Nobody wants the government meddling in their church, temple, mosque, or synagogue and telling them what they can or cannot do in terms of their own religious liberty. Over the last four years, we've seen this exact same mentality at play in Trump's diehard base. In fact, a great many Trumpists, whether they're evangelical or not, were spurred on in the Capitol riots by feeling of outrage, resentment, and anger that the government had overreached itself and denied Trump the electoral victory that he had so clearly won by a landslide, in his words. That initial idea that Falwell and others had to motivate a massive conservative base on the basis of moral outrage over government overreach is also a direct through line to Trump's base, and in part, this is what led to the Capitol riots. A great many of the rioters shouted phrases like, it's our house, or we're taking our government back. They believed Trump's big lie that the election that he'd won by a landslide had been stolen from him through some kind of a conspiracy. And now the Democrats, as well as a few traitorous Republicans, needed to be stopped. Literally, they claimed that they were about stopping the steal. This mentality is, I think, it's also tied to a great many anti-maskers, many of whom, maybe not incidentally, are also diehard Trump supporters. They believe that both the state and federal governments have overreached in trying to institute mask-wearing mandates or shutting down businesses to stop the spread of COVID. And as we've seen, the roots of the Christian right go back to this idea that people like Jerry Falwell and others promoted expressing their outrage over what they saw as government overreach, tyrannical abuses of federal power, the government trying to legislate morality from the point of view of secular humanism, and so forth. Number four, as we've seen, the early Christian right made another genius move using wedge topics like abortion, homosexuality, the ERA and feminism, pornography, rising divorce rates, alcoholism, etc. They were able to establish a direct linkage from all those evils to what they characterized as an assault on the family. They pointed to these evils as directly contributing to the moral decline of America and a weakened military to boot, such that communism would potentially win. Keep in mind that the Christian right arose in the paranoia of the Cold War. Again, this was a genius move on the part of people like Falwell and Weirich way back in the 1970s. Just like the issue of government overreach, most people, whether they're religious or not, are rightly concerned about the fate of their families. And when influencers like Falwell and others were able to cast what they termed as the assault on the family by the government, powered by this secularist, humanist worldview, well then... Religious people would again be concerned, if not outraged. And when that whole thing was cast as a weakening of American society overall by attacking and destroying the traditional family and leading to a wimpy, weak military too, why then godless communism might indeed just come in and take over. Listen to Falwell's statement to Francis Fitzgerald in the summer of 1980. 
He said that if American society is any further weakened, quote, the Russians could walk right in and take over without firing a shot, end quote. Number five, in addition to his rabid Christian nationalism, which, as mentioned earlier, Perry and Whitehead have proven to be the single most important factor in evangelicals voting for Trump in 2016 and 2020, there's another couple of connections I believe we can make between Falwell Sr. and Trump. Business dealings and leadership style. This involves two aspects that would always checker Falwell's career, although somehow, as I said before, he always managed to avoid the major scandals that felled so many of his fellow TV celebrity preachers in the 1980s. Number one, he had constant financial troubles, and to go with that, extremely shady business dealings, to put it mildly, to keep his ministry empire afloat. And number two, the running of his church and other associated ministries in a dictatorial, despotic manner. Conway and Siegelman, in their book Holy Terror, report that almost from the beginning, which as we know was literally from the beginning, within a week of founding his Thomas Road Baptist Church, Falwell was already on the radio with his old-time gospel hour show. So from the beginning of his media empire, Falwell was a consummate grifter in his efforts to raise funds. They commented in 1982 in their book, Holy Terror, that, quote, as a TV preacher, he may be the supreme religious huckster of the era. Jerry Falwell will sell you anything to float his various fundamentalist operations, end quote. To raise funds, Falwell sent out the following items to his faithful donors. Bronze Jesus First lapel pins, a faith partner pocket secretary appointment book, a memorial brick used to build one of his campus buildings in Lynchburg, or a copy of one of his latest books. Those items and more were among some of the gimmicks that he used throughout his entire career to entice the faithful to donate to his sprawling media empire and political organization. Just to give you an idea of his expenses from the year 1981, his old-time Gospel Hour show was on 400 radio and 500 TV stations nationwide. He had a private jet and traveled over 300,000 miles per year, doing speaking engagements at churches and political rallies alike. And of course, he constantly sought to expand his Liberty University empire by enlarging its campus, which cost a lot of money. He needed, they say, at the time, a constant cash flow of $1 million per week just simply to keep his ministry empire afloat. And that's in 1981 dollars. Just imagine what it would be today. And he was not above outright lying to or straight up manipulating through fear tactics his base of donors, as Frank Schaefer revealed in one of our recent podcast episodes. And this issue of financial grift and hucksterism thus intersects with his dictatorial leadership style, something that his infamous son Jerry Jr. was also accused of during his tenure as Liberty University's president. Frances Fitzgerald related the following story from her 1981 New Yorker article. She says, quote, Falwell's financial troubles and the confusion that he creates around them can be understood only in the context of the relationships that exist between him and his congregation and between that congregation and the outside world. In 1979, the dean of the Liberty Baptist Seminary resigned after a doctrinal dispute with Falwell. When, in the course of the dispute, Falwell questioned his administrative abilities, the dean angrily responded that it was Falwell who was the poor manager, creating financial crisis after financial crisis. He also accused Falwell of running a dictatorship. The last accusation was a curious one for the dean to make, since fundamentalist churches are generically dictatorships. And she goes on to conclude, most Baptist churches, including most of those which belong to the Southern Baptist Convention, 
are governed by their lay members. They have deacons or committees of laymen to oversee the finances of the church and to hire, and are the pastors. But independent Baptist churches are run by their pastors. Falwell has always run the Thomas Road Church, and he has always insisted on his own absolute rule, end quote. Do we need to draw, then, the very clear lines between Falwell's shady business model, his dictatorial leadership style that demanded absolute loyalty, and that of Donald Trump? My argument is that it was celebrity TV preachers like Falwell that laid the groundwork for the cult-like evangelical support base that Trump enjoyed during his presidency and still to this day enjoys. Falwell ran his church, university, and media empire on the basis of a biblical patriarchy, toxic male evangelicalism leadership style. This model that is so ingrained within evangelicalism and has been for decades is, as Kristen Dumay so convincingly demonstrates in her book Jesus and John Wayne, it's one of the main reasons why so many evangelicals were primed and conditioned to worship Donald Trump. He embodies the exact same leadership style and ethos as Falwell did and so many other evangelical leaders did and still do to this day. And finally, let's conclude this very long episode with the final point, number six. As I've been saying through this entire episode, there's a through line to what people like Falwell, Wyrick, LaHaye, Robeson, and so many others started in the 70s and 80s, and the rabid evangelical support for Trump from 2015 on. In other words, if it wasn't for that initial push back in the 1970s, specifically to get evangelicals involved in politics in the first place, powered in large part by a dominionist-style mentality, America most likely wouldn't be in the situation it finds itself in today. We've just seen that Donald Trump has been pardoned for his role in the Capitol insurrection by the Republican Party. This is where we're at today. Well, the diabolical genius of early Christian right organizers was to tie their efforts into Christian nationalism and a long-standing belief that Christianity has been unjustly persecuted in America. Eventually, the fear and paranoia, the resentment among a great many evangelicals that have been festering for literally decades would eventually boil over. And I think to a great extent, what we witnessed in the Capitol riots on the 6th of January was, as has been noted by various media outlets, it was specifically a Christian insurrection. Flags and banners were seen all over the riots proclaiming statements like, Jesus 2020, Jesus is my king, and Trump is my president, Jesus is my savior. And from the point of view of Christian nationalism and its intersection with real-world violence, perhaps one of the more disturbing scenes, if that were even possible, given the scale of violence and the multiple deaths that resulted from the riots, was the prayer of the QAnon shaman, Jake Angeli. He led the prayer from the dais with a bullhorn after rioters had stormed inside the Capitol chambers. In his view, the Capitol riots were a success overall as they sought to stop the certification of the Electoral College's votes of Joe Biden as the rightful president. After removing his trademark bearskin headdress, complete with Viking horns, Angeli addressed his prayer which was laden with conspiracy theory language, to our Heavenly Father. Other rioters in the chamber quickly removed their headgear too and bowed their heads in reverence. In his minute-long prayer, Angeli went on to thank his Heavenly Father for, quote, allowing the United States of America to be reborn. Thank you for allowing us to get rid of the communists 
the globalists and the traitors within our government, end quote. Therefore, according to Angeli in his prayer, the successful overtaking of the capital would, quote, send a message to all the tyrants, the communists and the globalists, that this is our nation, not theirs, that we will not allow the America, the American way of the United States of America to go down, end quote. I wonder, if Jerry Falwell Sr. were alive today, what would he make of all these recent developments? After all, the Christian nationalism that he so fervently promoted both before and during the decade of his beloved moral majority has only gotten worse since his death. Not only would it become the single most important factor for that overwhelming majority of white evangelicals who voted for Trump both in 2016 and in 2020, his involvement in high-power politics would pave the way for someone like Paula White Cain to be Trump's spiritual advisor. We can also thank him, along with his colleagues Paul Weirich and so many others, for the fact that the Christian right had such a high-profile presence during Trump's presidency. They also had a profound influence on so many of Trump's cruel and hateful policies. This is, unfortunately, the face of what modern-day American evangelicalism has become, and Jerry Falwell Sr., along with a great many others decades ago, helped to set the nation on that course that would culminate in the presidency of Donald Trump. Don't believe me? Just listen to the words of evangelical leader James Robeson, another major figure in the origins of the Christian right. He uttered these prophetic and highly prescient words at a pastor's conference in 1980. Robeson said, quote, If necessary, God would raise up a tyrant, a man who might not have the best ethics, to protect the freedom interests of the ethical and the godly, end quote. All those decades ago, the Christian right proved it would be absolutely fine with someone like Trump in power, as long as he protected their interests, their so-called religious freedoms, and advanced their agenda. Well, thank you for staying with me on this episode, this incredibly detailed, long look, as we told the story of Jerry Falwell Sr., the forming of the moral majority, and I hope made some connections to what we've seen over the last four years in terms of the Christian right, the evangelical involvement in politics, and that diehard, rabid, cult-like base that supported Donald Trump for over five years. And even now, after he's gone from the presidency, they're still just as loyal as they were before. And the truth of the matter is we have people like Jerry Falwell Sr. and his other compatriots to thank for that. If you have any thoughts, comments, questions about this episode, drop me a DM. Follow me on Twitter at MindShift2018. You can also send me an email directly from the MindShift Podcast Facebook page. So drop in, like that Facebook page. There's also a lot of really good videos on that page. What I tend to do is I post up our MindShift Zoom calls that we have every month. So you can head over there and take a look at some of those as well as sending me an email you can also subscribe to the MindShift Podcast YouTube channel and catch every episode there, as well as my conversations with Peter Montgomery of the Right Wing Watch every month as we continue to monitor what's going on in the Christian right. So thanks once again for joining me on this episode, looking at the story of Jerry Falwell and the Moral Majority. I will see you again right here on MindShift Podcast. Yeah.